Nation and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games, Genesis Foundry, and of course, the Genesis Roleplaying Game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and tonight is going to be a fun-filled show as we get to speak with Katrina Ostrando, who will be talking to us about layout and design, and John Dunn, a man who is a literal machine when it comes to producing content, to tell us about his initial offering on the Foundry. Plus, we'll be answering some questions from our listeners, and of course, a whole lot more. So that's a lot to get through, right? You better believe it. Well, uh, wouldn't it be great if I had an ever-so-cool cohort, a partner in crime, an equal like no other to join me on this adventure, a connoisseur of good gaming and all things homed bake. You should see the bread that it, uh, he's been baking of late. It's GM Chris. Chris, how's it going? What's up? <laughs> How is uh, the baking going? Wow. <laughs> uh, wow. What is up, Gamer Nation? Um, uh, things are good, man. Uh, uh, busy, busy. And yeah, I've been baking. I bake bread. I'm learning to bake bread. And it's good. It's good bread. And it the looks, bread is good. It looks good. Obviously, I can't taste it but uh, since I'm on the other side of the planet. But <laughs> it looks good. Yeah, uh, it's 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 really it's really really good. Mm. It's really good. That's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing, man. I'm doing. I'm working, taking care of the family, baking bread, and writing. That's 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 my life. Mm. That's that that's 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 been it. And it, there's there's a lot to write for. We're in the midst of a play test for our new product. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> ooh, and I'm and I'm, the play test reports are trickling in, and it's so exciting. And I'm. <laughs> It's just wonderful. It's 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 squealy. It's it's full of squee. Mm. Um, yes, it's full of squee. Um, but you know, Huli, we have a, a monumental show ahead of us. Oh, uh, no, uh, we keep trying to say we're going to try and do shorter episodes, but darn it, <laughs> we keep bringing on guests that that propose these incredible topics of conversation mm. that I know are just going to take us a while. So. Should we get into some news, maybe talk about what's new on the Foundry? I agree. Lots of products this week. Uh, So um, it's time to get into Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from Genesis Foundry and the Genesis Roleplay game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio Podcast of the Week? Absolutely. This week, we're talking the Age System Engine with the Adventure Game Interest Series, or Aegis Podcast, for short. Uh, In this episode, GM Rain and the heroes find themselves on borrowed time. The eclipse is coming, and when the life of the sun is blocked, death reigns. The PCs don't know what this will bring, but they have plenty of obstacles below them to contend with. If you're a lover of the Dragon Age RPG, which you should be because it's absolutely fantastic, or any of the Age System games, this is an actual play podcast for you, and you really should check it out. And you can find it and many more amazing gaming and geekery shows over at D20Radio. 
foundryvault.com. All right. So let's open up the Foundry Vault and take a look at what's inside. Chris, would you like to take us through what's first? I know, because I loved it. Uh, first up is a new offering uh, from the amazing Christopher Ruthenbeck, uh, who actually brought us the Zephyr Knight supplement mm. recently. Mm-hmm. He has now launched a new 11-page supplement called Archetypal Species. Mm. Uh, uh, Christopher has created a pay-what-you-want supplement that focuses, expands, and easily explains a good best practice method for creating your own archetypes and species. Very mm-hmm. similar to our own advice that we, we gave at the beginning of, of, the, of the furnace for, uh, for episode four. Huli. Indeed, yeah, um, absolutely. But, you know, uh, instead of listening on a podcast, he's crystallized it in, an, in another unique way and an easy-to-understand way for this supplement. And then he goes so far as to put that advice into practice. We're walking you through those steps for the creation of two new archetypes in the supplement, uh, mm-hmm. the gymnast and the sylvan. Mm. Um, I mean, he literally walks you through the creation of both. It's it's an 11-page supplement, a quick guide providing any GM or designer with just a short reference tool set to easily create your own archetypes and species. We highly recommend it. And again, it's pay what you want. Mm. So you can, you can download it if you find it's worthwhile, you're using it. You can go back and pay the creator for it, what you think it's worth. Mm. And it is worth something because it is highly useful. Absolutely. Yeah. And Christopher's done an amazing work on it. Um, and yeah, definitely well worth it. Um, so, uh, so go and check that out. Now, we also saw the release of another small but highly useful supplement from the ever prolific Scott Zumwalt, uh, who we interviewed on our last episode, if you recall. Uh, Scott has taken a page from his popular Something Strange modern horror setting and released Expanded Fear Guidelines, which expands and clarifies the, uh, the fear rules that are in Genesis, uh, offering GM's uh, advice on how fear can be used in games and also expanding how uh, dice results can be spent during fear checks. It's a fantastic addition that really brings more meat into the fear rules, uh, which I use quite often. And uh, if you're not using fear rules, you need to be. Uh, And it's highly useful for any GM uh, running with fear rules in their setting. Uh, and it's only a buck, so you need to be having this product. Is all I can say. It's a buck, totally worth it. Awesome, mm. awesome, awesome. Yeah. Now, I also have to mention another product, which uh, it's a fantastic resource for players of Genesis, uh, and it's yet another product from Mister Zumwalt, uh, and that's form fillable character sheets for Genesis, Realms of Terranoth, and Shadow of the Beanstalk. Uh, these forms are uh, are amazing, uh, which also puts your dice pool next to your skill automatically uh, when you're filling in the character sheet. Uh, plus, it gives an extension to the talent pyramid. So instead of just one page, it actually goes to a second page, uh, which is very useful, especially if you're doing a longer campaign. Uh, so you've got even more room uh, for your plethora of talents. Uh, it's It also pays you want. Uh, so you don't have any excuses not to have it, and it really is a must-have for your gaming group. Absolutely. And don't forget, guys, I said this a minute ago. If you and your group are using any of these products that are pay-what-you-want, consider seriously dropping some coin on them. I mean, even if you if you paid nothing or just a little bit for it to begin with, um, you know, if you find yourself using it, man, and you're enjoying it, Drop some coin, increase that payment. It really encourages uh, developers out there to make more content for the Foundry. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Mm-hmm. 
And you guys can find these products and many more great Genesis Foundry content over at DriveThruRPG.com, simply searching for Genesis Foundry. Indeed. Um, now, of course, it's a new month. So a quick reminder to all listeners to email FFG for a request on the Foundry Spotlight. Uh, as a reminder, FFG recently announced um, a monthly article series on their site called the Foundry Spotlight, uh, which will focus on one piece of Foundry content each month nominated by you, the readers. Now, it's obviously an incredible promotional opportunity for all of the authors to help sell their product um, and obviously to highlight the Foundry itself. So be sure to send an email uh, to Foundry Spotlight at fantasyflightgames.com and tell them what Foundry product you want them to spotlight. Uh, just put the name of the product in the email subject line and include a brief one to two sentence uh, reason why you want FFG to review that product. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> shameless self-promotion time. Most of you listeners who are fans of my familiar setting, I would love for you to send in a request for it. Absolutely. That would be swell. Yeah, it's a great product. It really is. And, and I'm not just... Um, saying that because it's Chris's product. Um, It's a fantastic little setting. uh, And, well, little, it's huge. Um, But uh, it's got so much room. And if you want to play it in a fun way, you can. And as Chris mentioned in the last episode as well, uh, if you want to take it all serious and do Animal Farm or or Watership Down or something like that, as somebody uh, else has spoken to Chris, uh, has done it is well worth your while so um you know go and take a look at that and please uh make a recommendation to fantasy flight on the spotlight so that'll be great all right so before we get into tonight's show topic uh and talk to uh our special guest i think i want to do some rules discussion what do you say chris Oh, I'm really excited because it sounds like we're going to do us some die casting. Die casting. Okay, the Forge podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us all with a powerful set of tools to do it, specifically through skills and talents. The die casting segment is about closely examining individual skills and talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. Last episode, we dove headlong into the resilience skill, and we got a lot of great comments and even more great ideas shared on our Facebook page, which is one more reason that all of you listening should like and follow the Forge Podcast Facebook page if you're not already. But tonight, we're going to swing our discussion back to talents to discuss a somewhat overlooked and yet remarkable talent with a great deal of player flexibility, low cost of entry, and most importantly, a talent that provides a startlingly good base for other talent templates. Indeed. And that talent is one with nature. Now, this interesting talent is often overlooked, which, in my opinion, is a bit of a shame, uh, because it modifies an important set of rules in the game. And it really expands uh, the options for players to recover a limited resource. But perhaps most importantly, uh, this simple talent serves as a superb template for modification and reskinning of of new talents, something that we're going to delve into quite heavily uh, when we discuss this topic. So realistically, let's take a look at the very basics of One with Nature. So it's... In the core rulebook, so it's uh, it's right off the bat, it's page 74, uh, and One With Nature is a non-ranked tier one talent. 
Now, obviously, it only costs uh, 5 XP, which is really, really cheap. You can have it straight off the bat when you're uh, designing your character and you're starting off on your adventures. Uh, it's got a very simple use. Uh, it lets a character make a simple survival check instead of using discipline or cool to recover strain at the end of, any, of, of the encounter. Uh, and all of that's detailed on page 117 for those following on at home of the core rulebook. However, the caveat is that it can be only used when in the wilderness. And that's a key distinction for balance. Uh, 5 XP talent that lets you completely substitute a skill in a core mechanic seems pretty underpriced. It's that variable usage criteria that, that only lets you use it in certain specific circumstances that keeps it well-costed and balanced. And it also teaches us a lot about designing our own similar talents, uh, restricting them and, and costing them appropriately. Absolutely. And this leads us into the discussion of, of the real power behind the one with nature talent and why it's useful. Mm. So Lily, let's talk about strain recovery. Mm. Okay. Because that's, that's really the heart of this talent and, and why we're talking about it. Now we, we talked about this on the show before we answering listener questions and other things, mm. but, but one of the core proven concepts in this system is that strain is recovered much more easily than wounds. Yeah. Um, Unlike wounds, you can roll to recover strain after every single encounter. Yeah. Um, and, and and a full night's rest, unlike wounds, will typically recover all the strain that you've suffered. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, there's a lot of really cheap talents, uh, desperate recovery, second wind, uh, and inspiring rhetoric mm-hmm. um, that, that, that let you heal strain even more quickly or more frequently or let others easily heal your strain. <laughs> mm. um, in the case of inspiring rhetoric, in the middle of an encounter, potentially. <laughs> um, uh, th- this is also why increasing strain threshold, whether it's done during custom archetype creation, uh, which we talked about in episode four, mm. um, or with talents like grit, um, actually gives you less bang for your buck, less benefit for the same amount of XP compared to increasing your wound threshold. Mm. Okay. Um, where 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 talents and 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 archetype modification, species modification that increases your wound threshold is going to give you more of a benefit for the same amount of XP, uh, whereas you're going to see less of a benefit for increasing your strain threshold because it's 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 easier to heal. Now, when you consider that though, there is another balancing factor because <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about dump skills now. I'm, I'm, Probably, when we're looking at it, uh, as per the normal rules, is that discipline and cool are the ones that are going to get used. Now, most people, when it comes to, out of those two, discipline is really just a bit of a dump skill. Um, You know, in Star Wars, it's a a lot more important, obviously, because it's what powers a lot of the the Force-related abilities. But as, as far as cool goes, cool is probably the one that is going to get the most use only because it's so intrinsically linked to combat. But most people don't spend it on cool. Most people are going to be spending it on vigilance instead because that's the one that comes up the most often. Yeah. Um, so uh, when it comes to, to the strain recovery, those two are going to be quite low. Like most of the games that I've run, people are using you know, just pure greens. Um, so pure ability dice to be able to recover those, uh, recover it. So those, uh, because it's really taken, 
um, you know, the, moving the 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 option to survival from cool and discipline um, really isn't too much better either, uh, because survival, unless you're playing a, a like a druid character or someone who's like a ranger, um, you know, it, it's it's a skill which isn't used very often either. But but you, but you hit you hit on the key concept there though, mm. unless you have a specific character build. Yeah, and that's that's the thing because when we talk about strain recovery and the fact that it's easier to do because you get more chances to do it, that's mitigated by the fact that you're doing it with these dumps skills, okay? Yes. With with discipline and cool, and the fact that okay, it's like okay, we're gonna let you roll this very often, but we know you're gonna be rolling all greens, right? <laughs> and and you know even even with one with nature. You, yeah, you're switching it to survival, like you say, and but and for most players, that's typically a dump skill as well, unless you're playing with a very specific character type. Yeah. Okay. Um, because that character type is going to have that sort of on concept skill choice. Yep. Exactly. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is very important that that benefit to a specific character type. Okay. So it's like, wow, this is a, this is a no brainer if I'm playing a ranger type character or a druid character, cause I know my survival is going to be jacked. So why the heck would I not spend five XP on this? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 is that that benefit to that specific character type again is, is, is only allowing that is reinforced by only allowing that benefit in a specific set of, of environmental circumstances that is integral to that character type. Absolutely. You know? And that sort of changes things, especially if you're doing like an urban adventure yeah. where you've got lots of buildings or whatever else, this talent doesn't apply. Now, sure, you might have um, a, a ranger or a druid character uh, who says, just hang on. I'm going to race out into the forest for a minute um, to go and you know to go and recover some strain. You know, sure, but that's kind of just you know that's that's a little bit cheesy as far as I'm concerned. But uh, but going down to it, the link there is is between the circumstances for use and the related skill, and and how they can both play into that specific character concept. Now. Let's not limit it to just druids and rangers. There are obviously going to be, you know, your survivalists, your, um, you know, your barbarians and, and things like that, that, that are, uh, you know, that's part of their, their concept of living off the land and, and things like that. Um, but a huge limiting factor, and I know that we keep going back to it, but the huge limiting factor here, and it's important, and we'll discuss this shortly, it's important to note that by itself, it's pretty powerful because you're replacing two potential skills with the one, but then you're also bringing that big limitation into it by saying that it's only under specific circumstances. And that's something that we can work with to create new exciting talents as well. Exactly. And that is why this examining this little gem of a talent mm. that is really only stupendously powerful for certain character types in certain situations. Mm. It's a great example to tease apart the talent rules to understand what makes a good 5 XP talent. Mm. This talent is great and well costed at 5 XP because it provides great flexibility to get away from two common dump skills uh, for, for a powerful benefit of strain recovery, but 
But what it the, the skill it transitions to is still on its own a fairly uncommon skill that is only common to certain character types. And even then, it's only used in a situation that kind of matters to that character type. Yep. Um, in, in a certain terrain or feature. And that's what makes this well costed at 5 XP. Mm. So going through all that, Hooli, mm. let's talk about expanding this and maybe a little bit of house ruling <laughs> to start developing our own talents. I mean, great. What 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 does all this mean? Well, basically what it means is that we can use these design lessons that we've we've learned from One with Nature to craft related strain recovery talents for different character concepts, for different environments, and things like that as well. <sighs> so, so in doing so, there's going to be some key rules that we've learned from with One with Nature. So we've got a transition from cool discipline to another uncommon skill. And that does mean that, uh, that if you let strain recovery occur within combat, uh, with a combat skill or a magic skill, um, even in a rare sort of circumstance, it's unbalanced. Okay. Okay. So rule number one, yep. transition cooler discipline to another uncommon skill, but it can't be combat skill, can't be a magic skill. That's right. Because again, in the same sort of vein that we've learned from uh, Knack for it, is that we know that you can't link those skills in because they're so often used. Right. And they're prone to abuse. Got it. The second rule is to make the skill transition to fit a character concept. So, similarly, if we use one with nature, it's very much inclined to be attached to a ranger-type character or a survivalist-type character. Got it. So, you need to link it in to a character concept. The third rule of thumb is to make the situational use condition fit the same concept. So... Again, if we go back to One with Nature, we're looking at its strain recovery using a skill that is pertinent to that theme, to that survivalist, and then we're also putting him in that environment that they're uh, that they're best suited to. Makes sense. Okay, so so to develop our own strain recovery talents in this vein, the rules we've learned. Again, number one, transition cooler discipline to another uncommon skill that's mm -hmm. not combat or magic. Yep. Rule two. Rule two make that skill fit the, a specific character concept and rule three, make the situational use condition fit that same concept. Exactly. Okay. I'm, I'm following Hilly. I'm following. So let's <laughs> dude. let's, let's, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's, let's, let's make some new talents right now. Yep. Inspired by with nature, following those three rules right now for some specific character concepts. That sounds cool. Um, I mean, look, look, <laughs> One one with nature does this for the naturalist and those ranger esque archetypes. Uh, you know what what other character concepts could we do? What 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 are, what are some what are some common ones we could do this for? Okay, so I know that it's a character concept that you love, and I know that I love to play them as well. So let's talk <sighs> the face character. Uh, you know, through social uh, characters, um, sometimes that uh, you know they rank up cool or discipline. Um, and you know, a lot of the time it's going to be because they're, they're the gambler as well, you know, as far as cool goes. Uh, but I really like the idea of a face character can, who can use their social acumen, uh, to recover strain as well. You know, the, they're okay. fairly pleased with themselves after, uh, you know, they're, uh, talking to, you know, talking to somebody 
uh, about I don't know some sort of uh, a negotiation or, or something like that. So they're they're pretty chuffed with themselves. So I, I'm thinking that sort of concept. Okay, so then then for the the uncommon skill you're going to transition to, it's going to be one of the key ones, right? Charm, deception, something like that. Yeah, well, I think in this sort of circumstance, you know, if you're looking at that, maybe we can be looking at leadership, for example, because leadership is not something that gets used fairly often. Um, and it's probably the best choice because it's it's a lesser of the used. It's as simple as that. Makes sense. Now let's look at this, the situational use of, uh, of that. So uh, we've said that there's a condition that we have to apply that to. Uh, or a uh, an environment. So if it's a base character, using a, a social skill. Um, uh, so maybe being in a crowd of people. You know, it's the it's the true extrovert who is gaining their their energy back from being within a group of people. What do you think? I, I like it, but I think we need to limit it a bit further than that. Actually, sure. Um, I, I think it's a bit broad because, like. I mean, I'm just, I'm just be blunt, being blunt here. I'm thinking about my players and the way they would try and justify things. <laughs> right. right. Um, um, and they're going to say, well, how many people's a crowd of people? Uh, because we got six PCs in the party right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is true. So if, 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 I, if I said that they could do this around a crowd of PCs, uh, they would always have that condition, and that would kind of defeat the whole purpose of having a situational condition. That is true. That is true. So maybe we can limit it then to a crowd of NPCs. I love this. I love this. Uh, so you have this idea that you're putting on a brave face for others, mm. you know, to, to be that extrovert and kind of steal your own resolve and recover your own strain using leadership when you're in a crowd of NPCs. Mm. I freaking love it. Cool. Um, well, shall we shall we break out the talent then based on this? Yeah. Look, let's let's sort of try to do it as best as we can. Um, so uh, what do we call it? So you use the, the words before. So why don't we call it a brave face? I think Love that's, it. that's that's pretty cool. Um, so it's going to be a tier one talent. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's activation is obviously going to be active because, um, you know, that's, that's how, uh, the other talent is. Um, it's a non-ranked talent. Um, and so as we've said, you know, when you're surrounded by a crowd of NPCs, uh, you can interact with uh, your character may make a simple leadership check uh, instead of discipline or cool to recover strain at the end of the encounter. Love it. Fantastic. Okay. We have made a one a version of one with nature for face characters. I absolutely love it. Cool. Okay. I have a character concept. Okay. Um, building off of uh, one of our more recent episodes about building burly archetypes. Right. Um, I got a I got a concept of the tough guy. Cool. Okay. You know, because I mean, thinking about these like these brawn-based archetypes, and and the and even then, just last episode we talked about the resilience skill, right? Mm, right. Um, I'm I'm keen on the idea of maybe finding more uses for those underutilized brawn-based skills, um, and and honestly, the chance for a burly character because this actually is very sensible to me yep. to use their brawn in certain circumstances to assist in strain recovery. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what skill am I going to transition cool discipline to? Uh, well, it's got to be a bronze skill, and I guess there's only two. Yep. Because uh, <laughs> I can't use combat skills. Uh, so it's either got to be athletics or resilience. Um, and look, athletics gets used quite a lot. Athletics 
get used quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I would I would go with the lesser of the two, mm-hmm. which is resilience, and yep. it's one more. It's one more use for resilience, but it also makes, I'm sorry, a lot more thematic sense. I, I I can see using resilience to reduce your strain. That makes total sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, that's for the, the situational, situational use. use. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bit tough. Um, <laughs> It is. It is because because as I'm thinking through this, like burly characters are most often associated with combat. That's their preferred environment. Yeah. Um, and and this kind of strain recovery happens well after combat is over. Yep. But I think I can play with that. Okay. Because this this is going to be a powerful talent anyway. Yep. Okay. Maybe I can play with that by having the character be in a dangerous situation, like a battlefield or a war zone, mm-hmm. where there's still in peril but they are out of an encounter Hmm. okay that's interesting (laughs) i can certainly see that up into abuse in some cases not i don't yeah potentially i mean it's up up to gm up to gm usage right yeah true how 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 often is that gonna okay the encounters i mean really this this would happen for like a session where you're in a war zone right Mm -hmm. and you know, it's not the, the whole session is not one long giant encounter. It's a series of encounters. Yeah. But you're you're still in active peril, right? Mm. Yeah. Because 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 then now that I think about that, this becomes the idea that that this this characterizes talent is the guy who's who or gal who's powering through the threat and the pain and the fear, even when they're in a tough spot. They're using mm. their physical resilience to overcome that stress. Yeah. And I think that's very fitting for a tough guy character concept. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. But they can only do that in such a terribly dangerous situation where everyone else is breaking down. Mm. So great, yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I like that right. as far as the war zone uh, situation, um, you know, and and battlefield, I guess as well. So yeah, yep, I think that works for me. Okay, so then if we're going to lay out the talent, mm. I don't know what should we call it. Mm. Well, I mean, you basically you sort of uh, you've gone through combat, you've you've really sort of uh, you know you you may have copped a whole heap of strain or whatever else and and i guess you're you're powering through um to get to the next thing so so what about power through i love it okay cool. so again keeping the format with uh 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 the 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 original town of one with nature mm-hmm. so power through tier one yep. again activation active incidental mm-hmm. um non-ranked mm-hmm. and i would word it i would say when in an ongoing hostile or actively dangerous scene or environment mm-hmm. your character may make a simple resilience check instead of discipline or cool to recover strain at the end of the encounter mm, i'm liking it now something just very quickly on that though what you may consider is that if you're playing in um a campaign where this is uh, you know, it, it's very much based around war zones. Like if you're playing a, a World War Two type game where you've got something like that, or Weird War, maybe you're pay- maybe you're playing Power of the Vril by Chris Hunt. Absolutely, that you may want to consider taking this up to a tier two talent because you, you're going to be more often in that sort of environment. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Excellent, excellent suggestion. Excellent suggestion. Mm. And it's, it's hard. I really wanted to do this for the tough guy, but it, 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 it's that's challenging. That's very challenging. yeah, absolutely. Okay, one more, dude. We got one more in us. What? What? what we reckon, do one more of these. I reckon. Look, uh, somebody that that doesn't get a lot of love is the 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 bookworm. 
you know, they're they're always left out in combat and whatever else. So, you know, the the academic character concept, I, I guess. Um, so, uh, you know, discipline can can sometimes uh, be taken by nerdy characters. I guess they're going to get a bit of yeah. use out of out of that as well. But but it's not necessarily it's, common. No, it's not common. Uh, but I really like the idea of an intellectually um, uh, an intellectual, sorry, regaining their their composure or reducing their stress uh, by doing the most stereotypical things imaginable, like diving into their books, basically, uh, you know, focusing their mind <laughs> and and spirit through uh, through the healing power of peer reviewed research and uh you know quadric uh, uh, equations and and things like that so <laughs> so i reckon <laughs> uh so yeah uh, somebody who wants to be a, a bit of a bookworm can somehow manage to you know find their zen um in the you know in the pages of of their favorite textbook zen zen and the art of peer reviewed research okay <laughs> um i i i absolutely love it um uh <laughs> God. <laughs> okay, so so uh, I I think I know what the obvious answer is here. Right. But what's what's going to be the uncommon skill you transition cool discipline to? Look, uh, the as far as the uncommon skill, I think knowledge is what makes sense in this circumstance. Uh, yeah. But uh, obviously, as uh, you know, as we're writing this talent for the core, it's just going to be knowledge. Uh, but I think if creating this for a specific setting. Uh, it should be an appropriate knowledge skill, like whether a law or science or whatever else. Right, right, right. You know, and and we talked about that in episode three. So give that a, a re-listen when it comes to talking about your uh, your knowledge skills as well. But you know, I think that if you wanted to make it a little bit open ended, you could probably say that uh, choose a knowledge skill. That's probably the most generic thing for it. It is open for a little bit of abuse there. But uh, you know, if uh, if you do definitely have a bookworm that that wants to have this sort of thing, I think that maybe just saying choose a knowledge skill, uh, and then you lock that in, okay. uh, so that you can't then change that at a later stage. So that's my suggestion there. But then the situational use condition. <laughs> yeah, what, what's what's that going to be? Uh, I mean, look, you need to have academic materials, obviously. You know, you need to have your peer research, <laughs> your peer review research uh, at hand. So it's not as though you can go, right, I'm going to get out my, my textbook and you carry that around in your equipment. Uh, that's not <laughs> that's not going to be very good at all. But you, you, need, you need books to bury your nose in. Basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so, okay, this is actually a pretty easy condition, man. You need access to a research library of some type. That yeah, makes perfect absolutely. sense. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, uh, you know, you're going to need to have uh, somewhere where you can spend a few minutes to, you know, uh, you know, sit down and open up a page uh, and then read through that. Because uh, when it comes to the strange recovery at the end of an encounter, there's no – you're moving into to narrative time. So, it can be however long that you need it to be. You know, obviously, if it's going to be days, you're talking about completely uh, recovering your strain anyway through normal rest – but if you're doing it in between scenes, especially if you're doing like a uh, like a something strange setting, for example, uh, by Scott Zumwalt, you are going to be spending a little bit of time in libraries. So, you know, this is a good time for you to calm your nerves um, by uh, burying your nose into that book 
for uh, for a few minutes. So, uh, so yeah. But actually designing the talent, what are we going to call it? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Research recovery. That, that's cool. <laughs> I like it. Very good. So how are we going to word that? So obviously it's going to be tier one. Activation is going to be active incidental. Uh, it's a non-ranked talent. Um, and with access to a library of scholarly materials, your character may make a simple knowledge check instead of uh, using discipline or cool uh, to recover strain at the end of an encounter. So, uh, so yeah, I think that pretty much covers it with that the whole the library of scholarly materials. <laughs> that'll be cool. Excellent. So, guys, hopefully this has inspired you a little bit. And we really were intrigued to take a look at One With Nature because it, it's a fun little talent on its own. But as I hope we've, we've uh, related to you, it serves as a great template uh, to expand out into a myriad of other talents that really target certain character concepts. Mm. And if you attack that concept with the right skill and the right situational usage condition that is focused on that concept, um, you can really come up with a lot of more unique options for your players. And hopefully the three unique options we've just come up with uh, will help you. And Huli, maybe maybe the listeners of the podcast can find these three talents that we've created, maybe maybe written up somewhere, somewhere. Somewhere special. Where where might they find them? Well, they're going to be able to find it in two different places. They're going to be able to find it uh, as a downloadable content directly from our website, which is forgegenesis.com. Uh, but you can also uh, find the link to that, which we will put up on our Facebook page. So take a look at that, as well as all of your social media, because we're everywhere now, apparently. But we'll talk more about that <laughs> later on. <laughs> so, yeah. uh Good stuff. Good stuff. And listen, if you guys have any specific requests that you would like us to cover on diecasting, if there's a skill or a talent that you really want us to dive into, let us know. Mm. Um, we'll get to it at the end of the show, our contact information. But obviously, the easiest way is to get to social media and post it up for us. We'd love to know. Absolutely. But, Huli, I think it's time to pump the bellows and heat things up as we open up the furnace because we have a marvelous guest, one of my favorite people coming on to uh, talk to us about what I'm hoping will be a really fun topic to discuss. Mm, absolutely. The Furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, over the past few episodes, we've talked a lot about creating settings, archetypes, the rules of the foundry itself, and adventure design. Plus, we've given you some guidance on the pros that you can create for your content, whether that be for your home games or to submit to the Foundry. But there is more. There is a lot more. Artwork, technical game balance issues, editing, and a huge range of topics that we'll be covering in later episodes. But tonight, we want to tackle a topic that is kind of at the end of the process of generating your own content. It's one that can set your product apart from everyone else's, making it a must-buy. And that is a layout. That's right. You know, the, the layout of the doc is the most critical step in generating a working document that is readable, easy to navigate, 
navigate and accessible to anyone who purchases it. Now, now almost anyone can put together a document with NP- NPC statistics and, and talents and archetypes and rules, but but the true the true connoisseur <laughs> in the developer world will tell you the key to all this is how the product is presented. And we've we've said very similar things with some of the guests we've had on the show in our past few episodes. Um, you know, and and all that to mean that if if not not done correct the bottom line is the layout of a product can either make it or break it absolutely now we here at the forge want you to uh, you know we want to ensure we impart whatever skills we can so that you can make your own campaign your fan setting and of course your products that you're furiously working on for the foundry uh you know to to make it the best that it can be and to that end we would like to introduce you to a special guest to the show who can help us guide uh, you in our quest for a better layout. Uh, she's an award-winning author and developer. She's been a contributing writer at Geek and & Sundry and is the author behind the popular and beloved Triple Crit blog. Uh, she's worked on an associate RPG... Sorry, she's worked as an, an associate RPG developer fiction editor and story manager at uh, Fantasy Flight Games, uh, and she is a highly sought-after freelance writer and editor. She's been a developer and writer on numerous Star Wars RPG products, uh, Android, Arkham Horror, Terranoth, Genesis Core, and perhaps her most lauded work, Legend of the Five Rings, probably one of the best RPGs that are out there, in my opinion. Uh, she's been a previous guest on the Order 66 podcast and has been one of our guests of honour at Gamer Nation Con. The Forge would like to welcome, for the first time to the show, Katrina Ostrander. Katrina, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's really exciting to be able to talk to you guys about Genesis, and I've been really excited to see all of the content that everyone has been putting out there. So, It's been, it's been a wild ride. Um, so <laughs> Yes, so it has. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay, Kat, so listen, some of our listeners, especially those who listen to Order 66, know exactly who you are, and those who've been to Gamer Nation Con in years past also most likely know who you are, but we have... Many thousands of listeners um, who may not be familiar with you. And and while we're eager to get your insights uh, from a professional standpoint into the world of layout, before we do, for those individuals, those listeners and Genesis fans who may be meeting you for the first time, we'd love to spend just a little couple minutes letting them know who you are, if that would be okay. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. So to get us started, tell us a little bit about your, your gaming history and what work that uh, you've done in the industry? Like, how did you get into gaming in the first place? Yeah, so I guess it's been 20 years now since I started writing play-by-post stories on web forums back in the late 90s. And uh, that was all through uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, college. I did a long stint of World of Warcraft before I finally got into pen and paper RPGs in college. Mm. And at my college, there was a very collaborative, homebrew-focused, and creative group of gamers that really helped um, get my feet wet as a game master. And because the culture was so much, everyone was building their own games, everyone was hacking up their own systems, that that was the environment in which I was learning to play role-playing games. Um, In 2011, I started my blog, Triple Crit, um, while taking a break from school. And it was actually a lot of the development work and tinkering that I was developing for my blog and sharing online and getting feedback 
um, all that kind of turned into a portfolio that I was able to show as like proof of my work when I applied to the associate role-playing game developer at Fantasy Flight Games about seven years ago, almost to the month is what I started applying. So it's funny how time flies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and obviously it's, uh, it's, it's paid off um, as you've, you've turned this into, into quite a career. Um, I gotta, I gotta ask though, because I'm, I'm very curious when you talk about getting into, to pen and paper tabletop RPGs for the first time, what was your first tabletop role-playing experience and, and, and maybe the same or perhaps differently. What was perhaps your most memorable experience? So I feel like I didn't realize at the time how much of a cliche it was, but I started out, um, playing Dungeons and Dragons 3.5. And we all started in a prison. We were all captured and we had to break out first thing. And so I was playing a elven dusk blade and I didn't even, I was still trying to wrap my head around prepared spells and spell slots and all that other fun stuff. And it was actually a really terrible experience because we had a very, <laughs> we had a very no oriented GM like everything that you wanted to do we would like tell him our like crazy scheme and because that wasn't how he had imagined us solving it he was very much like no or now the guards come and they kill you and it was pretty terrible and I'm kind of surprised that I you know kept at it but I was glad that I did um, because (laughs) it was a couple weeks later that I started Um, branching out immediately into other games and the first rpg campaign that i played in was dark heresy first edition and there's something beautiful about losing a character um having a tpk because you failed your fear check multiple times you're spewing (laughs) vomit all over the room where the demon prince or whatever there was some sort of demon had been summoned into the room you fail your fear check and you're running out screaming and vomiting and you fall down a pit and die. Wow. That was <laughs> probably that's that was my first for realsies character death, and I, I don't really know that I can top it. That's dark heresy. <laughs> that is <laughs> that, pretty much that, that, that is dark. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. That's that's nuts. But I wanted to keep playing. I thought it was pretty fun. Well, hats off to you for uh, for um, <laughs> you know persevering through that whole process of of having a GM that just says no. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you. I, I don't know if, if I would have managed to survive that, but um, but yeah. So well done for for breaking through that. That's for sure. So, Kat, just a, a question as far as um, uh, you've got a, a, a huge love for L5R and certainly your involvement with, with Legend of the Five Rings that you've had uh, while you were at Fantasy Flight Games. How did you uh, – when was your first experience, I guess, with, with L5R? So that would be back in, I want to say 2010 or 2011. Fourth mm-hmm. edition was brand new. Mm-hmm. And I think that I started hearing about the game when like the first or second supplement came out. So either Emerald Empire or Great Clans. And my having been a huge anime manga nerd growing up <laughs> since I was very young and also having studied Japanese culture and language in college and minoring in Japanese, mm. um, this game was really just it had my name written all over it from my, from my perspective. And so 
um, I had a really hard time finding a, a group to play with. And I ended up joining, again, some online uh, play-by-post style groups. And it was kind of hard to keep that going. Online games are always kind of a crapshoot as to whether people really have the time to commit to it and how frequently people are going to post. But I had made a ton of characters and it was so inspiring to me that it kind of made me want to write my own fan fiction in the world. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't too much longer. It was actually I was working at Fantasy Flight at the time in 2013 that one of my NaNoWriMo projects was an L5R story and so I just kind of had to really grapple with the world and do a ton of research. And so what was it? I remember the moment that my friend Matt Newman walked over. He was like, you're not going to believe what we're buying. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, it's not Legend of the Five Rings, is it? And he was like, he just smiled at me like knowingly because it was already my favorite system by that point and my favorite setting. So then... I was already positioned as the fiction editor when FFG acquired the license to The Legend of the Five Rings. So it just kind of worked out perfectly. Like, oh, I already know the setting. I can just start working on it. And <laughs> I was also able to consult with a couple of other people, some of the writers that had been working on it to kind of get their takes on what was working, what wasn't, what the organized play, prize, story prize structure looked like, all that fun stuff. And we really hit the ground running with the writers on that. So it's been, that was a real treat to work on the reboot. Yeah, absolutely. But no, congratulations. Oh. It was, it's an amazing product. I absolutely love Thank it. Thank you. So yeah, well done. Nobody can say that Legend of the Five Rings isn't a labor of love by the people involved. <laughs> and I think that's why it's lasted so long as a franchise is because just people get into it and they really fall in love with it. And then it kind of sticks with them. Mm. Absolutely. And then the fans are zealous. Okay, so then yes. I have to, maybe this leads into the next question, Kat, <laughs> because this is a this is a Genesis focused podcast. That's true. So so we do we do like to ask all of our guests who come on, what is your first love of Genesis? In other words, from a Genesis standpoint, what setting or theme do you most enjoy? What do you like to get on the table when you get a chance to run? Or a chance to play Genesis. Does Star Wars count? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm such a sucker for Force and Destiny. I don't know how many Tagruda agility based light, lightsaber combatants I've created, but the answer is a lot. Um, otherwise, I would have to say it was the Fallout module that I played at Gamer Nation Con that really sold me on the flexibility of the narrative dice system that powers Genesis. And I'm pretty sure that's the same uh, mod that convinced Sam Stewart to do Genesis in the first place. So it was just, what I love about it is how it really inspires you to kind of adapt the, the system to your unique world. And I'd love to get a Twilight Imperium campaign on the table at some point. I know Twilight Imperium is a little bit obscure for some people, because it exists mostly in the board game space, but it is in the core rulebook for mm. Genesis system. But I've been playing a lot of Twilight Imperium 4th Edition lately, and so <laughs> it's just, it's got that same sort of like grand sweeping operatic intrigue, but it's a little bit more dark than Star Wars is, I think. So I'd highly recommend people to check out the Twilight Imperium sections in the core rulebook. I think it's really cool. Mm. Twilight Imperium is more Babylon 5 than Star Wars. 
and okay. uh, but but a little, but it's still in the space opera vein. It's that dark political, you know. Mm-hmm. I I freaking love it. But Genesis, and I, I have to I have to comment on this because you talk about especially your love of manga. Um, so my nine year old, um, I recently introduced to Sailor Moon. Yes, <laughs> and because uh, um, they're all the episodes are on Hulu. And yep. And so she's been devouring it and she she asked for some of the manga. And so I got her some of the books and uh, she's also started to role play. Uh, we, we started to play Dungeons and Dragons. She's been asking um, for D&D specifically because it's what her friends are also talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thank you, Matt Mercer um, <laughs> uh, and every other celebrity popularizing, you know, and, and I'll, I'll get her into Genesis eventually. But she knows what I do. And she's like, well, Daddy, you make these 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 you know, settings for, for, for your, for Genesis. And I'm like, yeah, she goes, can you make a sailor moon setting? <laughs> and and what's I, your I, answer? I almost dropped my glass. I'm just like, <laughs> on, on one hand, it's like a labor of love. It's like, but baby, but I could never put it on the foundry, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take the time that you could spend making that sweet, <laughs> sweet cash money to do something like that's kind of the, the tragedy of the, um, the IPs that everybody loves. It's like, okay, well you don't have the, the rights to that. So mm. you just kind of, it's, it's like, it's hard. Do I want to do something that's a pure labor of love or do I want to make potentially, you know, twenties of dollars, you know, yep. it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a very, uh, um, Oh, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I don't know, I don't know how social media does this, but it, uh, this came across my feet today. Have you guys seen the picture of the cosplayer who does sailor Mercury? No. Do you like, mean Freddie Mercury as sailor Mercury? Yes. Yes, have you seen that? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah, because the the guy's a dead ringer for Freddie Mercury, like mustache yep. and all. And so it's like Freddie Mercury with the Sailor Mercury costume on in the classic Freddie Mercury poses. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> so I'm actually going to recommend that you check out um, at your local Half Price Books or on eBay, Big Eyes, Small Mouth, oh, I love Powers, that. a mm. Sailor Moon System. I ran that for months with a all women group of role players, many of whom were playing role playing games for the first time. And we had an absolute blast. So <laughs> I think it, it would be pretty easy to pick up, but if you don't want to have to make it yourself, but you still want to let her play something and you're willing to not do Genesis, I recommend the uh, guardians of order tristat system for okay. the sailor moon game. Thank you. I will. I will take a look. And if you and 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 also because I love man, we're off topic. Because I love <laughs> weird, because I love weird indie RPGs. Um, if you are a manga fan, um, check out Made M A I D Made, which is it's like it's it's not it's nowhere near as complex as Big Eyes Small Mouth. Um, but but the concept is you know you're playing maids like manga maids. <laughs> Like it's I haven't ridiculous. tried that one. I've I've heard it's slightly notorious. It is quite notorious. I would not okay. let my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, been... so... <laughs> 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 who, 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 do you want to stop me from from derailing this any further? Look, maybe just a little bit. So, <laughs> all right. So basically, we've now got a very clear idea of who you are, Kat, and uh, how you got into the industry and your experiences, which is. Amazing. Um, so um, let's dive straight into the topic at hand. So we're here to talk about layout and and how important it is 
when producing content for the Foundry or for your own campaigns um, or for whatever it is that you're doing in the Genesis realm. So basically, what is Layout? Can you give us a, a brief sort of overview of what um, Layout's all about? Yeah, I think it really comes down to Layout is the presentation of your content that is tailored for a particular audience and medium would be like my one sentence definition if I had to like write something on dictionary.com. That's a, that's a, that's a good one. It's, it's good. It's, 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 it's really good. But you, you used a couple words in there that I find quite intriguing. Um, the first one is audience. Because <laughs> uh, um, when, when I, I, I don't know, as we, as we talk about this, how important is the, the audience and their experience and what does that do to, you know, what, what do you need to think about and how does that go into, into the plan for your layout? Before we even start talking about how to lay out and tips and tricks and things like that, I mean, this seems like a pretty important place to start that I don't think many people do. Hmm. Yeah, and this is really the foundation because you kind of look at different realms of life where, you, like, demographics are so important. Like, how old is the person and... What are they like? What background do they have? And, you know, most importantly, how are they going to be using your product? And my big pet peeve is that I really feel like drive through RPG is such a is a digital storefront for role playing games. Mm. But because we're so used to just taking a product from the the print medium, like the, the files that are being generated for print have so many constraints that are specific to that medium that affect the user experience. I want to ask you guys, hmm. how many times have you been frustrated with or had to flip pages through and get frustrated during your GMing with an adventure that's like printed on the page? Yeah. The time. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot for me. And hmm. I get so frustrated because my, my role-playing game books end up being all of these little like, flippy flags that I have to put on specific pages and I need bookmarks and I have index cards and sometimes I do, you know, terrible things like write in my books. <gasps> I know. It's horrible. But this is Kat, all because yes. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm I think we have to bring the interview to an end. It's been a really nice time. Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> Um, I, I wish you well. Thank, thank you, everyone. Good, peace, love, and good gaming. Good night. Oh, that hurt me. I know. But the books are meant to be enjoyed, and that's why I buy a second pristine collector's copy. Uh. <laughs> because I know those feels. And I feel like the reason that happens is because when you're doing layout for print, you have to be careful about what's going on a spread and what's going on the left page and what's going on the right page and how many pages you have, because the more pages you have, the more expensive it is. And you can't just have like one or two extra pages. You have to do pages in increments of 16 or 32 because of how the book binding process works, mm. because of how the printers work. Yep. So you end up cramming everything in all these little nooks and corners of your layout Cough, Legend of the Five Rings, cough, cough. <laughs> I, I kind of like the marginalia in the in that book. But it it's frustrating because you can't duplicate content 
because that would cost pages. Mm. So you end up with like, and you want to present it in a way that like is a, the traditional way of presenting like an adventure where it's like this kind of narrative story that the GM is reading through. And then that's absolutely useless when you're running at the table, unless you've memorized all of the content on the page, mm. you're like, where's the sentence where it talks about what's on the other side of this alcove? Mm. You know, I'm always trying to find like this weird detail and I can't find it. And so that really brings me back to like your audience and who's using it. And like, I mainly write adventures and I've mainly edited adventures. And so I'm always thinking, who is the poor GM that's going to have to be running this and what would actually make their lives easier in terms of running this adventure? Mm. And that's why I'm really interested in it breaking out of the print paradigm because I feel like you don't want like pages and pages chock full of content. You want something that's easy to see when you're at the table, maybe like a one page handout that covers everything in the encounter that you're about to run mm -hmm. and has it really organized so that you have like these headers, like sensory descriptors or, you know, it may be putting your NPC stat blocks on that sheet, having like secrets that people can find out and like other kind of notes um, with rules reminders for you. Like, oh, Chase is going to be a big thing in this um, scenario. So I'm kind of wondering, like, in the digital format where you aren't slave to the page count master, I really challenge everyone who's listening to this to think about, well, how do you actually like to organize your prep when you're running a game? Or how do you like to refer back to player resources like new classes or new talents, et cetera, et cetera? What's your preferred way of consuming that and how could you make it better mm. so that it is actually closer to what you want and not just how much information can we pack on a single page so that we have to print the fewest number of pages possible? So, because I, I know with uh, one of the products that uh, Sterling Hershey did, that um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, was it, I can't, was it PowerPlay? I, I, there's so many of them now. Um, but one of them that he produced, which was the module, he put all of the NPCs in one sort of area. So they were within the, the product itself in, uh, in that particular section that you were playing in. But towards the end, he sort of summarized all of the NPCs. And I thought that was a really good idea. Now, it does go against what you said, Kat, that, you know, you shouldn't be duplicating stuff because you're obviously limited with regards to, to uh, you know, the, the print medium. But as you say, it's we're dealing with a, a digital medium, so you're not necessarily limited in that respect. Is, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so my question then would be, because I haven't looked at that precise product, mm. is it possible that a GM could print out the page of the NPC Maybe they cut it down the middle so that, you know, one NPC is on one side and one's on the other so they can kind of have them arrayed in front of their jamming space. Mm. I would love it if, a G if an NPC didn't take up more than one page so you don't have to flip yeah. while you're running. If you can just have all that information there because, like, you can have it be as airy as you want if you're taking up the whole page, you know, so that you can 
have it be easy to see and you don't have to flip things around or like lose your pages if you don't have a duplex printer or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's just so I think that would be great. And what you could even do in the digital product is you could duplicate it. You could have the NPC section Mm -hmm. where you can print it out or like just have it for reference whenever you need it. Or you could also put the NPC in with the section so that the reader can be like, okay, well, this is while I'm learning about, you know, so-and-so's background, here's also their stats and I can see how those correlate instead of having to flip through. And again, if you're on a computer screen, which is landscape orientation, now you have to like jump down to the another to the other page in order to read that stat profile. And now you have mm-hmm. to jump back up and find your place for where you were reading in the module. And so th- this is exactly what I want to get at is how can we like break out of those assumptions that we inherit from print Mm. um, in order to make it a smoother, either initial consumption of the material and a smoother reference of that material. Mm. And Huli, um, by the way, it it actually wasn't Sterling's adventure you were thinking of. Oh, okay. Um, It was Darren West's part one mm-hmm. um which i was going to bring up and and that adventure is fantastic it was one of the launch titles in the foundry it's already hit silver mm. um nice and congrats it, yeah he, he he did a fantastic job um and it, it's it's a Terranoth adventure um uh which is 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 fantastic and i think a, a huge part of the reason it's 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 getting so so much download uh but yeah the <clears throat> darren talked about that we had him on a few episodes back um <clears throat> to talk about it and he said, you know, yeah, I've got, you know, in each encounter, I obviously got the relevant NPCs, but at the very end of the module, he has easily printable NPC pages where it's like, look, here, you know, you print this, this one page, it'll have all the NPCs for this encounter on it. You know, mm. you, you print these two pages, it'll have all the NPCs for this encounter on it. And so that you just got it all in one place for printing. And that was, we consider that to be very smart and, and talked about it quite a bit, but I don't know that anyone's gone the distance as you suggest, and I'm actually getting quite inspired listening to this, to to really do that because we don't have the limitations of not duplicating content. Mm. We don't have the limitations of keeping a minimal layout or crunching as much in. We can we can get crazy. It's not about fitting as much information as you can on the page. It's about organizing the page in a way that presents things in the easiest way to consume. Mm. Right. Um, That's exactly it. <clears throat> So I, I and I I kind of want to also talk about something else you said for a moment because this is really intriguing to me. You talked about when we talk about the the print versus digital medium and and specifically uh the orientation in terms of virtually every PDF is produced in a a, a letter format, okay? Where you know if you're whether it, whether it's you know A4 or 8.5 by 11 yep. mm-hmm. where you've got where it's it's like you're looking at a book. But as you say, this is actually not conducive to the majority of computer monitors out there. Or, I mean, and tablets you can obviously flip. But I know I know GMs who who read the stuff on tablets and have their tablets at the table. Those things have a landscape mode as well. Mm. Why are people not? Pre- I mean, even drive through RPG <clears throat> itself, you cannot upload a cover that is not um, A4 or eight and a half by eleven portrait view. Mm. It has to be in portrait view. And it has to be in that ratio. It won't even let you upload a cover thumbnail for your product that is in landscape mode. I know. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Um, uh, because I was trying to do something a little creative with familiar to make it stand out. And it was like, and trying to do a little bit of editing after the fact. It's like, no, you can't do that. Oh man. So this seems to be an industry ingrained thing. And regardless yeah. of, regardless of the cover graphic, which you can make whatever you want, to be honest, mm-hmm. why this is a fascinating topic to me. Why has nobody said, okay, this is a digital medium. Why the hell don't I do this in portrait mode? Because mm. it will fill the page perfectly and it'll look great on a tablet. Why, 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 why is no one doing this? So what's interesting about that is um, there are some people that have experimented with the landscape orientation. I want to say Interface Zero has a like digital version um, that is landscape. I think people are kind of um, freaked out by it because it, it looks <laughs> weird. Yeah. Um, you also have to do special considerations. Like this is jumping a little ahead, but if you want to do the landscape format, you need to make judicious use of columns. Mm. And the reason for that is the human eye has a hard time reading more than 10 or 12 words on the same line. Mm. Once you have more than 10 or 12 words, um, they'll start either having a hard time jumping down to the next line or they'll lose their way and they'll skip to the sentence above or the sentence below the longer it goes. It's just harder to read. Mm. So whereas with a portrait orientation, you could do two columns pretty easily for the landscape, you know, depending on what font size you have, you might be up to three. Mm. And that's again, kind of weird. And just, I think people are, it looks strange because it's unusual. Mm. Absolutely. Because it almost lends itself to people who are producing product. And I know this basically doubles the amount of work that they're doing. But they could almost have, when you download a copy of, of a particular product, that you have both versions there. That you have a, uh, a portrait version and a landscape version of the same product so that you're allowing people to have that choice. Yeah, and what's... What's really cool about that is InDesign has an alternate layout feature Mm. that allows you to take the same content that's being threaded through the text boxes, the same content that's running through, and it puts it in a different layout. And so the beauty is anytime you like correct a typo or make a change in the master layout, Mm -hmm. it'll also change in all of its children layouts. So InDesign actually has some workarounds that you can use to speed that up so you don't have to totally relay out your book. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Casting casting my my Star Wars role-playing experience back, before, and I don't think either one, I, Katrina, you may have, but Huli, I know you haven't. Mm. Um, I, before Fantasy Flight Games acquired the Star Wars license, you guys know that license rested with Wizards of the Coast, mm. right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They published three different versions of a Star Wars role-playing game, um, the last of which is probably the best or second-best iteration of D20 I've ever played, um, which it was called st- it was called the Saga Edition rule set, Star Wars Saga yes. Edition. Yes, Saga um, Edition. Love it. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really good. And that's actually where, where the Order 66 podcast started 11 years ago and um, with, with, that, with that edition. But those books... Because, and again, this is very interesting, uh, because we're still talking about print medium layout, 
because they had a revised core rules and a, a, a an original core rules and revised core rules version were basically the the D and D three O and D and D three five equivalent for Star Wars, which they had published first, right? Yeah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. were your standard uh, you know portrait books to make these books stand out and and show to be the truly different line that they were. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Saga Edition books. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, I have. The, yeah, they're nine by nine. Mm. So they they were nine by nine square. Mm. Um, and a lot of us loved them, but they got a lot of flack for it. <laughs> but the coolest part about those books, this sounds stupid, but I could open the open the book, you know, and 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 it would spread out nine by eighteen, and it would fit so much better underneath like the edge of the table and the the play mat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the maps. And I don't know that stuck with me. I've started producing character sheets in the same uh, landscape format. Um, that's what I've done for familiar as well. I've, I've learned I very much prefer that because it actually, this sounds stupid, but in play you, that extra three inches or two and a half inches of space between the edge of the table and the play mat that it gives you being able to set your character sheet down and not have it encroach on the map mm. um, is something that I've, I and my players have found great enjoyment in. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting things, but when you talk about this layout, and this goes regardless of what type of layout you're going for, you talked about columns earlier, Katrina. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about and reiterate again, because I think this is a huge tip and trick for people doing layout. Let's reiterate columns. W- what's a good width? Is there is there you know? And maybe we can reiterate again the proper word count um, or or width that we're looking for on that column size. For, 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 for user comfort. Yeah, so the, the guideline that I learned is 10 to 12 words per line. And the reason that's important is because it depends on your font size, how big your columns should be mm. by that measure. And so smaller, um, the smaller your font is, probably the more columns you're going to have because you'll hit the 10 to 12 um in a shorter space mm-hmm. but obviously if you have like a larger font size then you know it's going to be kind of weird and cramped you're going to get like six words or 10 words compared with um you know the 10 to 12 for the smaller font size so that's why it's words per line that's really important the other thing to consider with columns i guess there's there's three other things um gutters which are the space in between your columns. And you do want to have some sort of margin or padding in between your columns um, just to help the reader, like not crash into the next column as Mm. they're reading. Um, And then you also want to consider justification and hyphenation. So when I say justification, I'm talking about left alignment, center alignment, right alignment, and then justified is when, the left and the right both fit perfectly within the column and there's variable space in between words. Mm-hmm. And so that can make a really clean looking product. And I think most of the Genesis and star Wars books are probably justified alignment. I don't have one super right in front of me, but I I'm willing to stake like five whole dollars on that. <laughs> they, bet. You, would win, <laughs> you would win the bet. They are all justified. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because so, most, most fiction, I mean, well, it depends, but a lot of fiction isn't. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. And that's because the um, the ragged lines where it's just less left justify is technically easier to mm-hmm. read from from what I've heard. I haven't done the studies myself, but um, the having the spacing, especially depending on how having the variable spacing with justified, especially depending on your column width, can run you into problems. If you have some very big jargon, very large words, um, you'll end up with um, like two words on one line and like four words on the next. And it looks really unbalanced and strange. And Mm. so you need to turn on hyphenation Mm. in order to get that to kind of balance out more. Um, But you can also have what's called rivers, which are when the white space lines up in a strange way and it just kind of like pops out when you're looking at the text. So you want to be careful of rivers when you're using justification. Mm. That's a great tip is turning on hyphenation because that can solve a lot of those problems. If you, if you force hyphenation in a few places, Mm. the other, the advanced trick is learning about non-breaking space, which is like the coolest thing for me as a, as a layout person, which is instead of a normal space where um, it'll do a, most word processing programs in InDesign will do an automatic word wrap. Mm-hmm. If you do a non-breaking space, you're telling the program you are not allowed to separate these two words on different um, lines. And that is way more efficient than inserting like a hard line break, like shift enter. Mm-hmm. Because if you ever need to change the text again in the future, that shift enter is going to come to bite you in the behind. <laughs> And you're going to be like, why is there a random break in my line? Oh, it's because there's a hard break. That's right. One question I did have, um, and it's a, a, a real pet peeve of mine when I'm reading product, is orphaning of paragraphs. It yep. just, oh, it just irritates me. And I know that people do it because it makes that their columns aren't necessarily even when you're looking at, at the bottom of the page. Are okay, Huli. Yes. Huli, you, you need to explain for the neophytes what an orphaned paragraph is. All right. So basically what an orphaned paragraph is, is if you've got a paragraph that let's say that it's five sentences in length, that the start of the paragraph is down at the bottom of the column and it may go for one or two lines and then it bounces up for the rest of the paragraph at the top of the next column. That irritates me like there is no tomorrow, and I don't know why that is. Maybe I'm just OCD, but still. No, <laughs> I don't think – so one thing that's interesting is that I've learned the definitions of widows and orphans differently. Right. So when you say an orphan, I'm thinking of you have a paragraph and the last line has five or few letters. Right. Okay. And then you have to change the kerning on the text to reduce it to like negative 10 or negative 15, and then it'll pop back up. And for me, a widow is when you have the same thing, but it's on a column break or a line break. Right. So it's just kind of floating. But I agree that being sensitive to where your breaking paragraphs is really important. And I encourage people, especially in the digital medium, to make use of the column break <laughs> character yep. because it will it will make everything look nicer. And you can also, um, in InDesign, do some neat things for it to um, balance 
the columns more mm. nicely and it'll insert like automatic line breaks for you basically mm. in order to keep it balanced on the bottom instead of like one thing is going really long and then the next column is a lot shorter. Mm. It'll make it feel balanced. Because mm. it's, it's worse when it goes across different pages. As well. <laughs> That's just like yeah. you'll have you'll have a heading and then there'll be one or two lines and then all of a sudden the the rest of the paragraph is on the next page. Um, you know, when it comes to FFG and, and Wizards, they don't tend to do that at all. Um, but obviously, as we're seeing more content coming through the, uh, the Foundry as well as other products that, that are on drive-thru, that people sometimes, they miss one or whatever else, and it, it's just a little bit irritating. So that's something to keep in mind when you're going through that process of, uh, of Q&A, I guess, um, uh, QA, sorry, uh, your own product. Mm-hmm. And the headings in particular, I would say, you know, kind of develop your own style sheet. At what point are you going to start a heading on a new page yeah. instead of having like that weird kind of small section? Um, and some like maybe your header ones will always start on a new page because you want that to be kind of like a chapter break or a section break. Mm. Absolutely. Another thing as well that I just wanted to touch base on quickly to get your opinion on, Kat, is when it comes to paragraph design, and I know that, you know, when people are, you know, going crazy with uh, with the content that they're writing, um, you see some paragraphs and they, are, they go on for literally 10 sentences. I know that when... You know, Talking to, to, to Keith Kappel, as well as, you know, doing the stuff that I've done with, with FFG, is that it's sort of uh, anywhere between three to five sentences per paragraph is basically what you should be looking at. Um, and certainly no more than around about anywhere between 75 to 100 words per paragraph. Is, is that sort of a, a roundabout, uh, is that the recommended, uh, I guess, um, process for, for, when people are doing their content? So I think of paragraph design less in terms of how many sentences are allowed and more, is this really on topic or is this a new idea? Mm. And so there is such a thing as a blob paragraph, but usually the blob paragraph that's running super long is an indication that there are multiple ideas being talked about. Mm. And so what you might need to do um, you know, when identifying that, and if you're really feeling like, oh, this looks like ugly to me just from a subjective standpoint, but you're not necessarily following, oh, I have to like make sure that I only have X number of paragraphs <laughs> in my or sentences in my paragraph, mm. then you can add transition sentences to kind of like wrap something up and then be like in contrast or however, or yet, which is one of my favorite, <laughs> uh, words to use. Um, so uh, those are my like developmental editor instincts mm. I'm not going to like try to chop up this paragraph in order to fit a predetermined length. It's more like what is actually being discussed in these paragraphs and how can it be broken up in a way that's more easily digestible? Mm. Cause you're not going to like put an entire steak in your mouth unless you do. <laughs> Maybe that's a Texas thing. Australia thing. Well, <laughs> Australia is just British Texas, but yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> it pretty much is. <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, it, it pretty much is. Um, but yeah, yeah, that, that is a Texas thing. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, well, but no, yeah. you, you, you bring up, you bring up an extremely good point. Um, 
and and I I think I think it's worthwhile. I also want to want to say very briefly because we're we're getting into a lot of really technical stuff, especially around various. We're, this, this is this is pure gold in terms of advice, mm. but we're talking about a lot of things. Um, that are very specific to InDesign and other uh, word processors. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the fights listening may not know what the heck we're talking about. Um, guys, and I apologize, one of the things we are not going to do on this podcast, because mm. it would be a waste of time, is to teach you the intricacies of InDesign. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but uh, There are very- YouTube videos for that. Yes, there, there is. Are inc- and they'll be better. Incredible YouTube videos you can go for. The two I can recommend that have taught me the most so far is there's a fantastic channel called Bring Your Own Laptop um, that they have. They have a two and a half hour InDesign for Beginners course. It's totally free. It's well done. Um, and then they have some free content on YouTube, and there's other stuff you can pay for through their site, and it's worth it. Um, there's another group called Adobe Masters that is amazing. So if, if you guys are lost with what we're talking about at this detail level and you really want to get some additional instruction, those are some good resources I can point you to. Absolutely. One thing that's kind of interesting about all of this comment, too. So my, my day job now is I do development, developmental editing on Microsoft Office textbooks. So I have become like... I used to know InDesign really well. I now know Word really well, Microsoft Word. And Word actually does a lot of these like desktop publishing style oh. things. Like mm. you can handle a lot of this stuff in Word. So if if the Adobe Creative Cloud subscription, which is like a heinous fifty dollars a month, mm. if you get all of the apps, yep. um, if you already have it, an old copy of Word or you have the Office subscription, then Word can also be a really powerful not as powerful depending on what you're doing but it can also get you into pdf mode because i don't have indesign and i didn't know it i i did all the layout for familiar in word mm. I don't, there I don't you know, have it i don't know if i've ever said that on the podcast before i mean I, we've talked about it on social media some but uh you know a lot of the guys i mean indesign is a much more powerful and versatile tool but i made something that looks pretty darn good in mm. word uh, you just, you, you know, there's, there's, you just, there's a lot of features. You just kind of got to know what you're, what you're doing and going for. Mm. The um, biggest tip that I would have for word, and I never noticed these before in the bottom right hand corner of each of the like groups, like just to the bottom right of where you change the font color, there's like this weird little down right pointing arrow. And if you click that, it opens up all of the options and you can get into much more like technical, precise measurements. I had like never seen those buttons before, even though I used Word all the time. So (laughs) I encourage you to like check out those little downright pointing arrows and then your mind will be blown by what Word can do on the Mm. on the inside. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So. Okay, Katrina, we've been talking a lot about, at a very high-level, layout considerations. Hopefully, we've challenged people to really think about their audience and be creative in terms of the overall formatting and and size and, and column usage. Um, but let's get into the nitty-gritty. Let's actually talk about the layout of contents, if we could. Because I want to know, like, we have all this information that goes into an adventure or a setting guide. Um, or a rule supplement. 
what do we think about when we think about how we're going to organize it all? What sections go where? Um, are, are indexes a good idea? You know, indexes versus concordance, basically. <laughs> yeah, so there's two kind of main ways that you can think about your content, which is large to small or small to large. And this is going to be, I think, mainly dictated by your writing style. So are you going to be talking about generalities and then getting into specifics, which I think is the default. And you'll see that pattern like replicated across all of the Star Wars source books and probably all of the Genesis source books as well. Mm. Um, or you can do something a little bit different. And I think this makes more sense for like a sandbox setting idea where you have um, small and you go to large. So you start off with the village and what's surrounding the village. And then as you go along, you kind of talk about the, the bigger picture or like pull out. And that, I think adventures tend to do that to a certain extent, because usually you'll start in like a single village hub. And then as you go out, you'll start talking about these other things that are now considerations that didn't really matter before. It doesn't like matter what the you know, main cathedral and the religious system of the, you know, of the empire is if you're just in this little hamlet that has their own weird folk beliefs. <laughs> so you can kind of think about then, um, you know, how am I going to present my information? And it, it's tricky because I think the biggest challenge is going from when you have the manuscript, which is just like the words in like your word processor or, um, you know, your Google doc. And then you're taking that and putting it into the layout program that you're using, whether that be word or open office or InDesign. I think there's another one out there that I haven't used. That's like similar to InDesign, but is cheaper. Mm. You, one thing that you kind of always should start with is just see like, all right, if I just throw this in, what do I get? What does it start to look like? And then you're basically assembling a puzzle from there and figuring out what are your headers kind of looking like? What, you know, how long are your sections? Um, I mean, otherwise you can use, you know, basic things, uh, you know, table of contents in front, preface, forward, introduction in front. Um, your credits page can go in the beginning or the end, you know, kind of depending on, what you think is important. Um, I've also seen um, instances where art is credited on the art piece next to it. I think fourth edition did that mm -hmm. of Dungeons and Dragons. So that's kind of interesting. Otherwise, it kind of depends. It, I, I think the biggest advice would be to kind of look at what products are similar to yours. What are they doing? And do you like that or not? Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of use that as a background, as a, as a basis. Because I think that uh, as, uh, obviously, you know, people uh, can be doing things directly to look like Genesis, the core rules. Uh, they've got, uh, you know, the, the templates for Terranoth as well as Shadow of the Beanstalk. So if they want to sort of stick with that level of format, obviously they can just go to the, those core setting books and just copy that style for want of a better term. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a that's a smart way to go about it. And I think it's more important to be less experimental 
when you're playing in an existing sandbox, like if you want to do an Android supplement or you want to do a Terranoth supplement, mm-hmm. I think that you're going to like bristle against people's desire for a unified aesthetic if you start doing things very differently. But mm-hmm. if you're doing your own work, then that's where you can be really original and experimental um, and interesting. One thing that just got announced today, um, this we're recording on October 9th, DriveThruRPG just announced um, mobile-friendly PDFs. Mm-hmm. And I was really impressed with those because they're made for a mobile-sized aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. And they have, on the right-hand side of every page, is a link to the alphabet um, letter in the index. And so you can like jump to like L in the index, and then it'll actually jump you to that page in the index section. And then everything is hyperlinked, so you can now pop up to see, oh, I wanted to look up L for my lumberjack skill, and now I can click the lumberjack <laughs> skill, and it takes me up to the lumberjack skill entry in the skills chapter. Um, and there's also a link at the bottom of every page to the table of contents. And I just think it's so brilliant that like we're we're starting to see now like these sort of experimental modes um, that make use of hyperlinking and make use of the index. And um, I'm really excited to see what people do more in terms of that mobile format of the PDF. Because mm. that's certainly Even- going back to the the audience and the user experience again. To, exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Even if it's not a mobile optimized PDF, let's take a moment to talk about the underutilized power of hyperlinks. Mm. Now, let's be clear. This adds a lot more work to your layout. It really does. But it's 100% worth it. I have downloaded PDF RPG products in the past where it's hyperlink city, man. Mm. Anytime they reference, anytime a skill name is brought up, you click on that text label and it is a hyperlink that takes you to the skill description in the freaking book so that you're you're not necessarily page jumping quote unquote i mean i mean if you have mm-hmm. to page, you, you can do so easier and you know when it comes to table of conduct context uh to table of contents and index that's the obvious choice for hyperlinking everything of course but you know beyond that you know when you're a lot of people still like to print things out and that's great but we're seeing a shift in the overall industry where more and more people are are viewing and running their content digitally from a laptop or from a tablet. Or for Pete's sake, Huli, do you recall at Gamer Nation Con last year I was running some random midnight game? I think it was Paranoia Light. Yep. And I, I forgot to do the print. Hmm. And so I ran it off my iPhone, okay? Yep. <laughs> um, because I could. And it was easier. Mm. So, uh, um, I mean, I mean, it's we're, we're seeing a shift in the industry moving towards that, and that means that hyperlink viability is just so much more useful. Mm. And it, it does; it adds an extra step to your layout process. But man, what a better user experience that is, or Absolutely. can be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I recommend that you learn how to do so the cross referencing, hyperlinks, and then you can also use. I want to say that you can use a similar system allows you to bake in your bookmarks so that you don't have to manually create them in like Adobe Acrobat um, so that when you export your file, it'll also 
build in the bookmarks for you, but I haven't been able to get them to nest quite the way that I want. So I always end up redoing them by hand in Acrobat. I'm sure I need to learn that, but I've been lazy. I haven't learned it yet. Look, one question, not a question, I guess one thing that I do want to raise that does come up occasionally, um, and it's we'll just touch on it very briefly, is fonts. Um, forgetting how they're sort of you're using them and, and the choices that you're making, I think something that needs to just be briefly touched on is regards to the legal considerations for fonts. Uh, I mean, obviously, Kat, you're in the industry as far as, uh, you know, you would know what can be used, what can't be used, what are some of the, the considerations and whatever else. Now, there are obviously ways that you can go out and you can buy fonts, uh, but there are a lot of uh, of free fonts that that are available for people. Is there a right way or a wrong way to, to be using fonts in your document? So I guess I, I want to like probe that question a little bit more. So hmm. what do you mean by a right way and what do you mean – in a wrong way in this case. It, okay. Illegally. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in the wild, wild west of the late 90s and early 2000s on the internet where, can you download it? Awesome. It's free and you can use it and now you can share it with the world. And so I like amassed this like horrifying font collection on my computer because I was like, this will be perfect for my website one day. And I was like 13. Um, <laughs> and I could never source my fonts back to where I got them from because I was just, I'll download this and this and this. And the other thing that I wasn't sensitive to was the difference between license for commercial use and license for non-commercial use. If you are selling your product, that is commercial use. So you need to do your homework and look at where you're downloading your font from and see who is this copyright. It should have the license right on there. If it doesn't, maybe ask yourself, am I on a legitimate font site? <laughs> and then like, it's so much easier now. The two things that I want to shout out right now are Google fonts, which I use all the time. They're amazing. You can download them. Again, you need to see what are the, you know, what sort of commercial versus non-commercial use. Do you have to credit the font designer? Can you just use it forever? Like that's totally crazy to me as like crediting the font designer, but hmm. you know, you got to make sure that you're using the license correctly. Hmm. Um, but the thing that I love, which is amazing to me now, is if you have the Adobe Creative Cloud subscription, part of your subscription includes Adobe Fonts. And if you have the subscription, then you can enable all those different fonts. And now you can just enable them in the program and you just download them immediately. And those are, again, you got to check the specific font license, but I believe that a lot of those are available for commercial use and they're included with my subscription. Mm. So that's, that's pretty awesome. It's, it's easier than ever to get your fonts legally. Mm. Um, but if you kind of like approach fonts in the same way that people approached like images and MP3s back in the day, mm. um, you might run afoul when the, the font designer or the person that holds those rights sees that you're using their font um, one thing that I see a lot of um, is people mimicking the uh, Dungeons and Dragons layout. 
mm-hmm. like on their own stuff. And I did a little bit of digging and discovered that those fonts are not free. And I believe they're included in Adobe fonts. But so all of those, I mean, they're not using it in a commercial sense, but it's still, they're like illegally using these fonts that they don't have the right to use and they're distributing them. And I think that um, if you download the template off of DriveThruRPG, you should be in the in the clear because they're providing that. But you you might just want to make double sure that, you know, depending on what the font is, you know, just Google the font name and see who owns it. Yeah, CYA. Yeah, Always absolutely. a good policy. Absolutely. Okay. Can we talk about something that we've danced around for a few episodes, mm-hmm. but really does play into layout? Very briefly, can we talk about art? Yes. Um, I feel like you should get Zoe on to talk about art at some point. I'm sure she'd be happy. <laughs> I, we, we totally will. And we've, we've, had, we've had some art conversations. What I'm really interested in is art from a layout perspective. And I, I guess the first place to really start is artwork versus text and page backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're, they're different things. And mm-hmm. with proper ba- it seems like with proper backgrounding and layout, you can make up for a, a dearth of art because art's expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think you want to kind of think about as you're developing your layout, what sorts of visual interest items am I going to have available to me in this manuscript? So items of visual interest include bulleted lists, numbered lists, sidebars, marginalia, tables, graphs, and then also illustrations. Hmm. And so those can all be placed and you want to be sensitive to like where you're placing them on the page so that they're balanced. So you don't have like everything's like kind of smashed together on this left page and there's nothing on the right. Um, so, you know, having balance is good. Um, but I think busyness is another consideration and that's where you can get. So the, the page background I believe that that's provided in the templates for the Genesis um, InDesign files where you have page background. And what's nice about that, I think it's really getting down to white is really boring to look at. (laughs) So you want to have some sort of color. (laughs) And so if you look at a textbook, usually there isn't a color there isn't color on the full background it'll be like a header sort of like bar or it'll be like some sort of um swoosh and like the footer area or on the side obviously you don't want to overlap your text onto any sort of background page element that will cause it to be unreadable Hmm. and my biggest hurdle growing up with web design and doing my own sort of like layouts there was my version of legible was a lot different from real person legible because I would forgive myself every time. Like, <laughs> oh, they could totally read that if they just highlight it and blow it up with their zoom. Yeah, that's totally readable. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> but I wanted it to be because it was only just this one section. So 
Um, what you'll notice if you look at other page backgrounds is like they might lighten up the area that is behind the text because contrast is really important. So you don't want like your text to be dark and your background to be a dark color as well. Mm. Fun fact for colorblind people, contrast is all that they can tell. So if you want to be accessible, um, imagine, put it in, in grayscale mode and mm. then see if it's legible. Mm. Because this red and this black, if you have a red background, might look totally legible to you who has color sight. And then a colorblind person sees them as the same color because they're the same saturation. I don't know if like red and black is like a particular issue. But the thing that I've learned over the years is in order to be colorblind friendly, you need to make sure that it's legible on grayscale. Mm. And that will also be good if your consumers, if you're customers are printing out in grayscale you also want that to be happy and legible yes i was just going to bring that up is if you've got if you've got graphic heavy documents um especially it's actually very easy to do in indesign because you got layers to work with and you can just turn things off okay Mm -hmm. um but but a lot of a lot of products release with the full color versions and then print friendly versions, mm. which are total grayscale with ma- with no no to little graphics, which is you know very important for those who are printing out. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about digital usage and, and media, but yeah, I mean, grayscale can be quite important. Mm. And something on that Absolutely. very very quickly that I'll touch base on is if you are going to be doing something that. Uh, that you are removing the background uh, images so that it is more print-friendly. Make sure that you QA your own document before you upload it to the Foundry or, or upload it wherever it is that you're you're putting it. Because I've had a playtest once where a particular product that was um, given to us uh, wasn't um, checked and the this whole section, which was supposedly on a back black background they didn't check the font and so all of the font was all in white so when we printed it out we just basically had the <laughs> we only had just the headings but there was no text at all because all Why of it you was gotta in white me like that Huli? <laughs> <laughs> Because I know exactly what page you're talking about. They create- and the beauty of it, and I think this is okay to share, yep. is that it was the ninja page. I know. So That's- it was just ninja <laughs> secrets meant to remain secret. Okay, so that's just that's just good planning and design. That's just that's just an in joke. Not a mistake. It's an in joke. Yes, you know? exactly. Or you could say a ninja. Oh God. Oh. <laughs> no, but but Huli was the one that brought that to us to our attention, and that was actually like a thing that wasn't on my mental checklist before of like, oh, I should be careful about. It's called reverse type is when your yeah. type, it, your font color is like white and you're going to have a dark background. Oh, I should check to make sure that my reverse type is being good because the other thing that I've run into is when I have a paragraph style for reverse type, like this paragraph is going to be white and then the next one, the next page is going to have black text again. If you're adjusting things while it's in layout, you might accidentally bump part of that paragraph onto the next page. So that's another thing to look out for yep. in your proofing or your quality assurance pass. Absolutely. 
Yeah, sorry for adding you on that uh, cat, but no, it's, <laughs> I take it's, responsibility for that. It's a fun also, story. Also, it was hilarious. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, so Kat, you you talked a little bit as we were talking about this with with layout and background, and and earlier in the moment you were talking a little bit also about tables, graphs, sidebars. Can can we take a moment to talk about tables and sidebars because these are two things that are extremely prevalent in in those of us who love the Star Wars RPG from mm. Fantasy Flight and in Genesis. They're they're incredibly prevalent. Um, I'd really like to get your wisdom or advice on sidebars and tables. And and let's start with sidebars because as Huli can tell you, we're in the midst of doing a play test on a new supplement for the Foundry <laughs> right now, and. The playtest group posted an open question like, yeah, uh, how does X work with Y? And, you know, you really should clarify that. Well, we did. We clarified it in a sidebar that is right there on the actual page. But it seems like and, and, and I'm, I'm kicking myself for this because. I don't read sidebars. <laughs> and like, I don't know if it's a genetic defect or what, but like people seem to and maybe it's just me. <laughs> do, do people seem to skip over sidebars? When are sidebars a good idea? When are they not a good idea? Because you always said that thing. Oh yeah, it's in the sidebar. Oh yeah, I know. Oh, I, I skipped over that sidebar. You always get yeah. that. Those conversations. I mean, what are your thoughts on sidebars? So I feel like we can look to the name, and it's side. Mm. And I think that no, I know that I have been guilty of this, where I put main rules content in a sidebar and i think you're absolutely right people don't read it um sidebars are kind of interesting because you as a reader have to decide when you're going to hit pause and when you're going to jump over to the sidebar and read that and when you're going to hit play and go back to the main um paragraph that you are reading and there's not always a header on the page to help you figure out where to press pause. Mm. So I think that it is best practice for the very reason you state to keep non-essential content in sidebars Mm. because they can be missed. They're kind of ancillary. I think they're good for expanding on topics or offering alternative viewpoints, but I think that we kind of, we tend to use sidebars as a text box instead of a sidebar. And the, I mean, that would be cool if someone just did like crazy stuff with text boxes and like, didn't really believe in like a running paragraph in general. I'd be interested to see that layout. <laughs> um, the alternative that you can do, but I don't know how much more mileage you're going to get out of it. Cause I don't know how many people read introductions is define the usage of your sidebar in the beginning. And you can say, this is a sidebar exclamation point in sidebar heading format. And then in the rest of the sidebar, it says throughout this book, you'll be seeing sidebars. These will sometimes contain main rules. So be sure to check them. Mm. And, you know, so you're just kind of giving your readers a heads up because I encounter this in textbooks as well, where we had a, a sidebar that was called taking it further. And that just sounded to me like it was like, oh, this was like this extra bonus you know, skill that you can learn, but it's not really related to the main thing. And then to my horror, I discovered that content in those taking it further sidebars was included in the exam. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we need to be more clear about 
the fact that you're going to have to read that. And so we changed it so that now if a student is going through the online version of the course, they're going to hit that sidebar. Like it's taken out of the layout and it's just like presented as its own document and they have to take a quiz on what they read that way that they're ready to encounter it in the exam. Cause otherwise I don't think it's fair. And the same thing in, you know, these rules discussions, you know, is it fair to expect every person to have read every single sidebar? And unless you've told the reader that they should, I don't know that that's a fair expectation. And I think there's also, because there's, there's, there's one egregious sidebar faux pas that I find in the Genesis core rule book. And that is the rules for flying and hovering mm-hmm. are located exclusively in the sidebar. Yeah. And I don't think it's intentional. I think it's one of those things where we as designers sometimes think, you know what, I understand this is rules, but this is never going to come up or it's rarely going to come up. So I'm going to stick it in a sidebar when the reality is it comes up a lot more often than we might think it would. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Especially depending on what setting you're doing. Mm. Yes. Yes. Okay. So are you, you guys are familiar with the, the Dresden files novels? Yes. 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 Okay. Um, I'm not sure if you've read the Dresden Files RPG. Um, it's been a long time. So uh, it, it came out a few years back. It is absolutely brilliant. It, it's a Fate product. It uses the Fate system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, where Spirit of the Century was actually the the we know none of us who who fell in love with Spirit of the Century because we love pulp so much. Um, we didn't know this, but they they developed Spirit of the Century because they knew they were getting the Dresden license and they wanted to develop a system that would iron out the kinks for a Dresden game. Okay. Right. Um, and so they did. The layout on those books is so sexy. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you, like you would not believe. And when, when you talk about sidebars in that way, like side information, mm. what they did is, first of all, the... It's a role-playing game that they've produced it in a way that it's written by the characters in the Dresden universe who have created this role-playing game because they all play RPG. They actually play Dungeons & Dragons in the books (laughs) and all that. Um, They've created this role-playing game as a way to codify and spread to the larger world the knowledge of the mystical evil threats that are happening. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so... What they've done is the RPG is laid out as if it's a draft copy. So they have margination and uh, literal like like sticky notes or or things that are printed on the page in different characters' handwriting. And every character has their own handwriting font and their own color. And they're adding in sidebars through color commentary. That I, love ser- it. I those stand out to me really strongly. That was an amazing addition. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible, and the fact that the fact that they sometimes do it through a full-on sidebar if it's lengthy, or if it's just a minor note, like you say, you know, we, we don't really need to know this, but if you're curious, this is larger. They'll handle it through an offhand way through margination, you know, almost like some, like like it's printed on the page, but like like they scribbled it in on the margin. It's <laughs> fantastic. So, yeah, that really gets back to the user experience. Just how are you going to make this easier to use? Does your does your reader need to learn how to read your book or can you make it a little bit easier for them by taking a little bit more time to like set expectations and tell them how you're going to be presenting material? Because that's a good example of, you know, if you want, it's basically saying you want to read this if or they'll be making a joke to just kind of make it more funny too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, I really liked that technique. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great... A great example to kind of inspire you. 
So, okay, this is good advice for sidebars. What about tables? Because tables, th- there's a lot of tables in this system. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, I, many RPG systems, some are notorious for their tables. Hackmaster. Terps. Yep. Roll Monster is what another one. What do you want to know anyway. about sidebars? <laughs> <laughs> there are so it, many things. <laughs> there are so many things. When it comes to tables, I mean, I mean, should you try and keep tables to dual columns uh, if necessary? Should you fill a page? Uh, is it okay to have a table that's column width that you have inserted? Um, are tables best uh, from, a, from a layout perspective at the top of the page or the bottom of the page or in the middle of the page? Or so do you I, treat I, it like and fit it where it goes? <laughs> So I think that you want to um, apply the same rules to your tables that you are to your sidebars, or at least that's how I've typically done it and seen it done in the Star Wars and Genesis things. So they're kind of adhering to that. um, They're working in the same page space. So they're not, unless you need to cheat, (laughs) uh, but usually you you stick to the same margins that you do for the body text. You either do one column or two column. If you have three columns, and you can do that. Um, I, I think it really comes down to um, how much space do you have in the, the material that you're presenting to determine whether you can fit it on half a page or three quarters of a page. That doesn't bother me so much. As long as you anchor it, I would say to the top would be better than to the bottom. Um, Mm. I would never put a table in the middle. That just seems like, I don't know, (laughs) there's something wrong about that. And I can't figure out why, because it's like, oh, well, I could totally see why you would do this. If like you're ending one section and the table's at the end of the section and then there's a new like heading one or heading two under the table, like that seems like it should work, but part of me is like still revolting at the thought. It sounds like heresy to me. <laughs> yes, it does. Right. Um, I don't know. I think, I think that, you know, don't break your rules crazily when mm. you're placing tables, try to stick to a similar rule point. Same for like overall aesthetic and colors. Um, the things that I feel like get underutilized are headings within like, heading rows within tables or heading columns. And I really highly advocate people to use alternate banded rows because I think that just improves the legibility so much. Cause it's like, Oh, I got to read over. And even though you have the borders, it's kind of nice. It's like, Oh, I'm like sticking on the tan color instead of the green color. Hmm. And that way I can follow it across. And um, for the, for the novices listening, alternate banded rows means having a slightly different background color for each row, for each line in the row, or each each row yes. individually. Yep. Um, exactly. Which you'll which you'll see in both Star Wars and Genesis. They mm. do it that way. Mm. Um, it's so much more legible. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think where you need to be really careful is when you have tables that span multiple pages, and this is when, depending on whether you're designing for print or digital, um, it would be good to make sure that the tables are facing so that they're on the same spread if you're doing a print um, version. So that way, like, there's less page flipping. But now that I'm talking it through, I'm wondering, like, could you be crazy 
and have a different page size to fit your table if you really needed to? And how much would that make people scream? I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's violating the rules of uh, playing by your own rules. But if you think that people are going to, you know, print it out or if the usability mm-hmm. potentially trumps the rules that you're using for the layout, maybe it does make sense to have like a special table page inserted into your document. Cause there's a certain level of intimidation when it comes to the size of tables. Now I don't know whether that's just my bad experiences that I've had with Rollmaster. I don't know, but I know when I see <laughs> a huge table that fills the page, it sort of like goes, Oh, <laughs> I'm just intimidated by it. And I am looking at both <laughs> both Terranoth as well as um, uh, Shadow of the Beanstalk because they obviously have these huge tables when they're dealing with talents and what talents can be used. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just something to keep in mind with regards to the size of your tables. It's great if you've got a huge equipment list, but try to maybe then break it up so that uh, it's, it's not as intimidating, uh, just visually more than anything else. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Don't don't overwhelm your reader. Like, think about yourself. I mean, maybe you're a superhuman that can hold a lot of thoughts in your head at once, but a lot <laughs> of us, we kind of take things in and there's like a maximum like cognitive load. Mm-hmm. So think about, you know, how much are you comfortable looking at? Which, what tables to you are attractive or not attractive? And let your own kind of instinct guide it and maybe get some feedback from your friends. Like, does this look crazy to you? Or... You know, just and that could be applied to any of the advice that we've just talked about is, you know, as you're experimenting with columns or font size or justification and so on, you know, like grab people whose opinion you trust and ask Mm. them what they think and whether they like it. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, does this same uh, advice apply for the usage and placement of maps? Oh, man. So maps are kind of a tough spot for me because the main critique that I got on the early Star Wars books that I worked on were, I hate the maps. The maps are useless. The maps are so bad. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I feel like these maps are useful. I don't know. Like, you know, I didn't like intentionally put in what I thought were bad maps, like by any stretch. But it did make me think more critically about, okay, why am I getting this feedback? What about the maps makes them useful or not? And again, it goes back to usability and audience. The struggle, I think, with the maps in printed products is that you can't get them out of the page nicely. You can't blow them up to the size that you want. Mm. And so I really like how on Drive the RPG, a lot of products offer their maps in a separate PDF. And that way... It can be whatever page size it needs to be and a different resolution. And it can, you know, if you have a really high quality map that's really large, you're going to balloon your PDF size and that's going to make your whole PDF run slower on a person's computer. Mm. So it's better to kind of, you know, have like maybe a thumbnail map that's relating to the content that's on the page, but having your real map um, available as a separate file Mm. um, or set of files and, the thing, too, is asking yourself, you know, I'm when you say maps, I'm thinking of uh, adventures primarily or setting books and thinking about, do the players need to see a different version of the map than a GM? Mm. Mm. And 
you know, offering both because usability and target audience is how you're doing your layout. And I think the other pit that you can fall down into is trying to put your maps into like specific frames in order to fit them on the page. And I'm just kind of at the point where I'm like, just throw the whole map on a single page. Like that's how it's going to be used. I don't want like the fancy decorative trim on the outside of my map, which is not useful to me or my players at the table. Just give me the full map um, at, at as large as it can go. And that's kind of my my wish list for how maps would work is give me the GM version, give me the player version, give me a high res thing that I can take to, you know, Staples or Office Depot and print it out for my, you know, private personal use, not for sale or anything like that. Mm. Um, so that I can just have a nice, like, high production value experience with my gamers. I think there's something that that also should be mentioned with regards to maps as well, especially for such a narrative game as Genesis, is that obviously with D&D and whatever else, um, maps are more, uh, and Pathfinder as well, is that maps are more required because there's obviously, you know, grid considerations and, and actual rule mechanics. Well, that's removed with with Genesis as well. So, you know, not every location is going to need a map as such. Uh, that maybe instead you should be using some of your um, your word count to basically explain the 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 room or the area that the characters are going into um, more so than than a map. And secondly, maps are expensive to make. Oh yeah, especially if you want totally. to do like proper ones. Like you, you look at some of the ones that that are done for uh, L5R. They are no doubt worth thousands of dollars because of the, of how intricate they are. Uh, so you know, to uh, if you're a map maker and you can do it in your own program and that you don't have licensing issues to to deal with, by all means. But uh, yeah, just some considerations there with regards to maps. Yeah, what is what the information that you need to relay to the GM and the player? that is better visually than it is in words. Like what you just pointed out, maybe it would be better in the manuscript, in the, in the text. Mm. So I think that's a great point. Mm. Okay. So we've talked about the generalities of layout. We've talked about some specifics and some really great ideas. I guess there, we, we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, columns and spacing. Let's there, there's a few more things I'd like to touch on while we have you. I want to get into, and this may be very simple answers, but and, and there may not be a solid answer for it, but from your perspective, you know, you talk about, you know, a number of words per column that's typically good for reading. We talked about that. Is there a, a magic formula or a best advice when it comes to things like overall font size or word count per page? Yeah, that's tough because I feel like the word count per page is dictated by the font size. Exactly. And the font size is really what is the smallest that you can comfortably read for long stretches of time? Mm -hmm. And that answer varies on the age of the reader. (laughs) So, you know, as, as people get older, they become, they have a harder time reading close up. So that's something to keep in mind, depending on your target audience. If you're in mainly operating in the digital medium and you're not doing POD print on demand, then does it hurt to make the font a little bit bigger? I don't know. Maybe not. So it kind of depends. 
um, on who you think is going to be using it primarily. And then the other major consideration is serif versus sans serif, which are the two main families of fonts. So serif has the, it's like Times New Roman, where it's got like the little flanges at the end of the text versus uh, sans serif is what you see in Genesis and Star Wars for the body text. Mm -hmm. And technically serif is easier to read for long periods of text. And that's why if you open your mass market paperback, it's going to be in a serif font, but sans serif can give you a different, more futuristic feel, which is why I think it's used in star Wars and why I think it's used in Genesis Um, is more casual, but technically speaking, it is harder to read. And so if you're following perfect typographic um, policies, you'll have sans serif for your headings because legibility is better for sans serif. So you want people to be able to see the heading quickly, read it quickly and know where they are on the book. And then you have the serif font for the longer hall reading. And it's also nice because then they're kind of complementary, and that's just seems to be like an aesthetic that people enjoy. And you can also reverse it where you have your serif as the header and your sans serif as the um, main body text, but you just kind of have to experiment. And there's actually really cool, typographic tools out there that'll show you different fonts and combination. And that's my biggest thing that I like to figure out is what two fonts, what heading font and what paragraph font pair really well that convey the tone and the mood of the setting that I'm trying to evoke. And can I read them for long stretches of time? Yeah. Great yeah, advice. I'm, I'm a, I'm a font monkey in that regards. I love, <laughs> I can spend hours playing with that. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's so great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting goose pimples just thinking about it now. Uh, <laughs> like, 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 ooh, ooh, ooh. I haven't then, spent <laughs> hours looking at fonts when I should have been doing work. What are you talking about? <laughs> talking about I don't know. I don't, but you, you find the perfect font, and then it's like, oh wait, is can I use this commercial? <laughs> <laughs> I remember one of the first products or the first CDs that I ever bought for a PC was, I think it was something like a thousand fonts. And I spent hours going through that because, yeah, I'm a bit of a font fan. So, yeah, I think there's, there's like a bit of a group here that I think we've got going, which, um, you know, we might have to have some sort of therapy <laughs> when, when it comes to fonts. But I feel like if you're the kind of person that likes to tinker with fonts and likes to spend time on it, that's also a good indication that you're probably going to enjoy the layout process because every page mm. you're like, ah, yes, look at these lovely fonts that I've put together. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, this is a new, new category of nerd, the typographic nerd. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I love it. Okay, Kat, we've been jawing about this for about 90 minutes, and, and I'm grateful for your time on this. We've provided a lot of hopefully thought-provoking suggestions for our listeners and really uh, a lot of great tips and tricks and things to think about. I would like to, unfortunately, wrap our conversation by maybe focusing on a little bit of a negative pallor of discussion. Mm. I'd like to oh. talk about things to avoid. Um, and and to begin with, you recommended, obviously, we've been talking a lot about some of the Adobe products that are out there. And you said, you know, th- like the latest versions of MS Word, which I, I use, are, 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 are really comparable. And they can be used in a pinch or as a mainstay. Mm. 
are there any pieces of software that you would not recommend or tell people to avoid when it comes to doing layout and design? So I have not had positive experiences with Google Docs for formatting purposes. It is, I think Google Docs excels at being a cloud collaboration tool to get multiple people typing at the same time. I have not had that kind of good luck in a Microsoft product when I want, you know, multiple contributors. But at the same time, I just don't feel like the feature set for Google Docs is as robust. It feels kind of stripped down to me. Maybe I'm wrong and I just haven't like spent the time to explore it, but I also don't feel like you're wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I've never uh, had the need to be like, Oh, well, you know, I, I, I've always had InDesign or words and those were, you know, more than serviceable. So I never felt the need to kind of dive into uh, Google Docs. And my main frustration with Google Docs is not layout related, but I absolutely hate the track changes version. I don't think that it's usable for real, like long documents. And so I will, if my writers haven't used track changes on their own, I will use the Microsoft compare feature. And then it shows me everything that's different between um, product uh, manuscript A and manuscript B and they don't have to have had track changes on, and I can't really do my job efficiently if I can't see what is, has changed between uh, manuscript drafts. That's just how it is. Mm. That's so, my little diatribe against Google Docs. <laughs> it's, well, you know, it, it's as you said. I mean, and I, I use Google Docs actually, unfortunately, fairly regularly for work, but I also use the Microsoft suite very regularly for work. And you're, you're, you're spot on. M- Microsoft, they're, they're leaning more towards, when it comes to word processing, they're leaning more towards, okay, let's make something that's a really robust word processing tool, especially from a design and layout capacity. We're starting to add more of that in. Mm-hmm. Where Google's focus is, okay, screw all that noise. We're going to give you a best-in-class tool for collaboration where everyone can mm-hmm. be working in it seamlessly. Mm-hmm. And that's a wholly different art software focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, then I, I don't even I don't know if the two are actually compatible. Uh, maybe somebody will figure it out someday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then, lastly, what are other common mistakes with layout? What are the things you can warn people against, uh, whether they're current or aspiring designers and writers who are doing their own layout for their own products? What are some common mistakes or things t- tips to avoid? I think you really want to avoid overloading a page with too many things going on. So too many sidebars, too many marginalia pieces, too much art um, trying to pack in. Like, especially if you're not worrying about how many pages you're taking up, let there be some breathing room. Let readers feel like they're not being overwhelmed because like, like Huli said, if it's too much, information whether it's in the table or whether it's on a page at you all at once you're going to be like oh i don't want to have to like (laughs) read this this is going to be work Mm. so um you know keeping your visual interest paired back i think this applies to a lot of things simple is sometimes better Mm. don't make it more complicated than it needs to be um the other thing too is that you can lose a lot of time 
in layout um, because you can spend a lot of time tinkering on it and you have to be conscious of, you know, how much is your time worth? How much time have you spent on this layout? Because you can spend hours and hours on it and, you know, just kind of... Uh, you need to have a good template. I don't think we, t- we that we talked about this, but Drive Through RPG, the Genesis Foundry, provide these is like having a template where you have all of your paragraph styles, and if you've been good and you've been coding those paragraph styles into your document mm-hmm. by using the word styles, for example, to apply heading one or normal or first paragraph or you know first paragraph drop cap styles to your document you're going to save so much time when you port it into indesign if you're working in indesign because you won't have to like apply that manually to everything that's that is the biggest most horrible thing that you can do if you are um a compositor is what the person who does layout for a living is called um if the manuscript that's been turned over doesn't have the code baked into it and their and styles are not being used. Learn the difference between paragraph styles and character styles and use them because you will spend so much time reworking what you've already done if you decide, oh well, I want to change all of my, you know, subheaders in the document, but you haven't been using styles. Mm. Now you need to go back and apply the new thing to all of the um the subheads. But if you had had them all as header two paragraph style, you could make a change in one place and it would propagate over the entire layout. So learn good styling. It will save you so much time. Mm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Kent, the, the, the Word document that is provided uh, on DriveThruRPG by FFG has all of those, um, those header suggestions and whatever else. And I know that that's what they use for the freelancers as well is you do it in that format because it then just drops straight into uh, into InDesign without a lot of work being done. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure that what you're talking about is that they have the pre-built-in styles in there. Mm. Um, the major pitfall there is that if you forget to apply them. Yes. Yeah. So just click in the paragraph, click on the style that you want, Um, there's also, you know, use find and replace because you can find and replace styles. Mm. It's really helpful sometimes. Um, the other thing that I recommend, this is like on the character, character style level is you can search for all of the bold words in your document and replace it with the emphasis or the strong style. And now you have character styles on those because otherwise those will be dropped all of your bold formatting will be dropped if you import it into InDesign incorrectly. So it is a great tool set that FFG has provided. Learn how to use it is my advice. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, Well, this has been, I I have learned things in this conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I am, am, of course. And I, I am, I am beyond, beyond, uh, 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 grateful for, for that. Mm. Um, uh, it's like when we had our play testing conversation, it's like, Oh my gosh, I really came away learning some stuff from this. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, uh, which, which I'm, I'm absolutely, uh, enamored with. And, um, hopefully our, our listeners, this has been a, a useful and engage as, as engaging for you as it has been for me. 
Um, Katrina, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat with us about this and lend your imagination and your expertise and your words of just incomparable wisdom on the topic. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me on. I hope that this has been helpful for your listeners. It's helpful for me because it means that I'll get to see prettier and more usable content being put on the foundry. (laughs) So it's a little self-serving, but I hope that this... (laughs) <laughs> I hope that these tips have been not too technical that you're able to get, you know, start like the gears churning around, like thinking about now you can look at your other RPGs that you love and ask yourself, what is this RPG doing and why do I like this layout? And if you ever find yourself, you know, looking through your RPGs um, and not liking a, a layout choice, ask yourself, why is that? And what did they do? And, you know, once you learn how to see in layout, you won't be able to unsee in layout. And I'm sorry that I've cursed you with that, but you're welcome. Well, ignorance is bliss. Cat, uh, I... <laughs> I've just got one last question for you because, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in your career and, and what you're doing next. Can we be perhaps um, seeing something from you for the Foundry in the not-too-distant future? I have an Android supplement that I want to work on. Um, I want to offer new player options for playing on Mars as a Martian colonist. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, my other freelance commitments have kept me so busy. Also, my house is falling apart. It's only falling apart a little bit. Um, where it's been hard to focus on the... And I'm sure that your reader, your listeners have this experience as well. When it's your own personal project and there's no deadline and like the, you know, you'll make 20s of dollars on <laughs> drive through RPG, it can kind of be hard to find that internal motivation yeah. versus if you have a work for hire contract where, yeah, you're not going to get the royalties, but... Um, you know, having an external deadline, having someone you're responsible to, Mm. and then just being able to like be done with it and have a deadline. That's what I've been focusing on. So I'd love to do some more work on the foundry. We'll see. I've also been pivoting my freelance career to more fiction writing. So hopefully you'll be seeing some more stories from me soon. Cool. Very cool. So, as Chris said, uh, Kat, thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you very much for taking the time. I know that we went a little bit over uh, what we expected, but it's been an absolutely fantastic discussion and I'm sure that people will get a lot out of it as well. So, thank you again. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Oh, what a great conversation. Um, <laughs> I, I sincerely hope our listeners got as much out of that as I did, man. I really do. <laughs> that was huge. I mean, the the I'm I'm inspired to go and do stuff now, and I haven't done anything for the Foundry yet. So, uh, so yeah, no, absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm going to go just change the face of layout right now. <laughs> um, this, this is great. But, uh, I, I love I love talking to Katrina Ostrander. She is mm. she is a gem um, and and an incredible talent uh, in the industry right now. Absolutely. Um, 
But Huli, speaking of gems and mm. incredible and experienced talents in the industry, yes, indeed. I think we have someone else that we're going to uh, bring on to talk about something very specific, are we not? Absolutely. We have a fantastic guest coming on to the show um, in the form of John Dunn. So uh, I think we should probably get on to our section that we call Breaking the Mold. Breaking the Mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry. As we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Absolutely. Now, tonight's guest is someone who has uh, he's received credit in an incredible slew of games and supplements across a wide range of genres, uh, from his first work in Shadowrun through to commencing with FFG and their Warhammer Rogue Trader game. Uh, he's been involved in Star Wars and all of the Warhammer Fantasy, sorry, Warhammer 40k lines, Mutant Chronicles, Accursed, Android, and was involved in the upcoming Keyforge setting for Genesis. He's also uh, developed Hope Preparatory School as a standalone game before converting it over to Genesis. He is one of the hardest and fastest working writers I know in this industry. He's the author of Anthrochimerics, I never get that right, a supplement we're here to talk about tonight. He's Mr. John Dunn. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Indeed. Uh, it's great it's great to have you, sir. It's great to have you. And we're gonna talk about the fact that you're we're we're gonna get there. But we're gonna talk <laughs> about the fact that your first offering for the foundry was anthrochimerics, and then we're gonna talk about what you do for a living and that that's just boldly, unapologetically ironic. So we'll we'll <laughs> But we'll get there. But listen, listen, John. As we as we ask of all our guests, and I, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure many of our, our listeners know exactly who you are, um, especially if they frequented Drive Through RPG at any time in the last several years. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, for the, for those who haven't, you know, and and honestly, for you know, to, to learn things about you that we may not know yet, we'd like you to maybe briefly tell us about yourself and and your gaming career. All right. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, so I started out playing AD and D back in 1980 when I was in grade school and my cousins who were quite a bit older were already playing and I got a chance to sit in on one of their game sessions and was instantly taken with it. <laughs> and uh, from there, promptly recruited other kids at my school and got a group going. And over the decades that followed, we played you know a pretty broad range of games. And then in the early 90s, I started writing for the RPGA and I wrote uh, probably about a dozen different adventures for probably close to a dozen different game systems for them. Uh, and then they kind of became, you know, a uh, TSR house organ and stopped supporting other game lines. Mm. And about that time, I started grad school and said, huh, I should probably be focusing on this instead. Uh, then about 10 years later, I, you know, had finished grad school and said, and had been playing some MMOs for a while and said, you know, the end of the day, I don't really have anything to show for this. I should get back to writing. And uh, it so happened that FanPro was publishing Shadowrun at the time and was looking for people to write for their living campaign. And I started writing for that and eventually coordinated it and moved up and did some of their print work and 
uh, became a developer for them, and then uh, moved on to a bunch of other companies, including Fantasy Flight. And I've been working for a whole lot of different lines since. Started my own imprint, Meliorvia, which publishes Accursed and Hope Prep and a couple other things as well. But this is still a sideline gig for you, right? It is, yeah. So uh, my day job is I'm a research scientist. Uh, I work in uh, molecular genetics, studying human disease and wow. uh, models of it. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> so, so what you're saying is you're slow you're kind of a <laughs> you know you could use a little, you could use a little bit more schooling um you know really really understanding some of the more fundamental educational concepts yeah that's yeah. numbers i just don't do well with numbers at all yeah okay yeah i i got, got that i got that okay okay right yeah so uh, <laughs> I enjoy the game writing because uh, it, you know, it gives me an opportunity to explore a more creative element. Mm. Mm. Indeed. Ah, so with that. the supplement that you've produced first for the Foundry, obviously you've chosen Genesis um, to uh, to sort of like springboard in, into that, and you've obviously been involved in in Genesis generally um, for a little while now. So when you play Genesis, what sort of styles of games or, or game settings and themes do you like to get on the table when you play? And look, don't necessarily limit it to Genesis, of course, but, um, you know, we're a Genesis podcast. So um, what's sort of your first love of Genesis? So honestly, with any generalizable role-playing system like Genesis or, you know, GURPS or Savage Worlds, the first place I want to go with it is I want to do a mashup. I want to do cross-genre gaming. Right. That's what drew me to Shadowrun. That's what drew me to Torg. And that's what really drew me to Keyforge. But can't go into that too much right now. Sure. Uh, and I love the ability to interplay technology with magic, with, you know, uh, elements of faith and have a fantasy or a mecha or all merged into one setting where, you know, you kind of hold, bring in the whole kitchen sink to the table. Mm. Um, I find that to be really compelling. But, you know, it's not the only thing I do. I, uh, I've got a stream going right now where I'm running uh, Masks of Neurothotep for using the Trail of Cthulhu system. I've got a recurring game uh, for Savage Worlds where we're running ETU, which is their modern horror setting. Mm. Uh, but for Genesis right now, I'm really digging Keyforge a whole lot. Wow. Very cool. We are all waiting with bated breath and <laughs> anticipation. Yeah, me too. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, speaking of mashing things up and, and mixing things up, <laughs> let's talk about this creation of yours, John. What, sure. What would you say to someone interested in buying your product in the on the foundry? You, you, have, you have many, but the, the first one that you launched with Anthrochimerics, give us the elevator pitch. What what is what is it? Why should we buy it? So the big thing that it does is it offers a dozen pre-designed species for folks to just go out and grab and plug right into their setting. And each of these different species are based on popular animal ideals. So there is a dog person, there is a cat person, and you know a dozen more. And they kind of I realize that there are animal 
versions in the Twilight Imperium setting right in the core rules. But this dives into it a little bit deeper and gives you a little more specific options for each of those different models. And the nice thing about it is that they're designed with the intent that they can be plugged into a fantasy setting or a modern setting or a sci-fi setting. So if you wanted to use them in any of those, it's really easy to just plug and play it right into whatever setting you want to do. My thought with it was that it could be a great support piece for somebody that's building their own setting or that wants to expand their setting in a different direction than what's gone on in other published works. Um, you know, it's, the big idea there is that it could fit into just a lot of different options, depending upon what the game master might think would be a good fit, or if the players wanted to bring something specific right into the game to, you know, customize that character that they wanted to play very specifically. Interesting. And it's it really can it really can fit anywhere. I mean, fantasy it's super easy, obviously, mm. to fit it in. Um, and obviously, when you get into sci-fi and space opera, equally easy because they can just be alien races. But even <laughs> even in a more modern or weird setting, you know, it's you know the idea of of, uh, you know, laboratory manipulated species, basically, or, uh, mm. you know, lost world or hollow earth kinds of things. I don't know. There's a lot of potential there. Well, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the first thing that comes to my mind. <laughs> but, uh... That shouldn't be, sh- that might not be entirely coincidental, let's say. <laughs> Indeed. So, what, uh, John, what do you think um, is, uh, it makes your product different from the other settings and the other uh, products that we're seeing coming out in the Foundry? So, the one thing that I think is particularly applicable to that question is the fact that it's not precisely a setting. It's mm. more a tool that you could plug into one of the other settings that are out there. I think you could easily fit them into uh, something strange. Mm. And I think it's a fantastic compliment. Uh, you mentioned Ninja Turtles. That's something that might happen if you were to pair it with Ready Fight quite easily. Mm. Um, just, you know, as a random, for instance. <laughs> I had Completely thought of random, that. for instance. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yes, I think that would work really, really well, just very quietly, but, um, but yes. Well, could you give us a sneak peek of something that is in the product that's maybe unique that we won't see anywhere else on the Genesis Foundry? So it's possible that I've missed it, but I don't think anyone has done a s- series of species-specific talents, and that's one of the things that I introduced with Anthrochimeric. Mm. So every one of those species, you've got your inherent species abilities, but then I also offered a talent that's specific to each of the different animal types so that they could really embrace that animalistic nature by learning some particular trait that kind of brought forth a stereotype from them. I I might be missing it as well, John, but I I, I agree. I have not seen that anywhere. I I thought it was absolutely brilliant. It's one of the things that... is I think a model that can really add a lot to the game is doing species and archetypes specific talents and talent trees, yep. you know, yep. for, for, for those things. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. And that's the direction I, I think it would be fun to develop further. I just didn't think I could really fit it into the book as it stood. But uh, if there's an interest, that's something that I would certainly be, I'd certainly be willing to develop further in the future. Mm-hmm. That I th- I think that idea for anybody who's out there can then springboard into you know for, as you said John uh, for for characters that really want to embrace the the stereotype I guess 
uh, for a particular species. If people are looking at designing their own uh, their own talent trees effectively without it actually being a tree um, for uh, for those particular races, then, you know that that's a great idea. So um, yeah, well done. That's cool. Thank you. Um, so we spoke at length with uh, with Cat Lee tonight about layout and design. Were there any challenges that you faced in this area that, that you feel you got right or other areas that you think that you may, uh, may be able to improve on for, for later products or as some people are doing later releases of the same product? So I got an awful lot of stock art in the book and I'm pretty happy with the way that turned out for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that I encourage folks to do is to go out and take a look at what stock art's out there as they're developing a product mm-hmm. uh, with the thought in mind that you may be able to find artwork that complements it and make sure that that artwork that you're reaching out to is A, up to the quality that you want, but B, is also going to fit in with the other design elements you're using. Now, in terms of the actual design elements, I leaned really heavily on the material that FFG provided, mm-hmm. and I think they did a you know bang-up job with the graphic design work because it's basically the same as what's in the core book. And since I was designing a product that I wanted to be compatible with a broad range of settings, uh, I felt leaning on that was justified because it seemed like it would reflect the notion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, in fairness, you lose a lot of theming when you fall back on that. And mm-hmm. so for something that's more heavily themed, I think it's worth coming up with your own graphic design. Uh, mm-hmm. We had done that for Hope Prep already. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty straightforward for me to just in that product line instead, go over and use that theming that was in place. Mm. Um, One thing that I think is really important for anybody that's doing this to keep in mind is consider what the printing costs are going to be for the end user Mm. when they go to print it out. Mm. Because if you're piling on all those graphics on a page and they're printing it in color, that's going to get expensive. Mm. If they're printing it black and white. I mean, either way, you're going to use a lot of ink or, you know, black and white, you might not be able to see stuff as clearly. Mm. Uh, So I'm a real big fan of the Acrobat layers feature that Mm. I know you can easily implement in InDesign so that you can put those page backgrounds or those graphic elements on a different layer. So when somebody goes to print it, they can decide if they want to have that stuff show up in their printout or not. Ooh, great suggestion. You know, and uh, well, okay, so... (laughs) In a semi related question. We as we as we talked about at the top of the interview, you 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 sir have a bit of a reputation um in the industry for getting work done very quickly and very efficiently. <laughs> um uh what sort of advice would you have for writers aspiring I mean in, in the game industry as a whole, um, either through some medium like the Genesis Foundry or or through other means? So the first thing that you want to do is you want to start from an outline. Uh, If you're working for a company as a freelancer on an assignment, that may be handed you in some detail initially. Depends on the company, depends on the project. But in any case, you're going to write a lot faster. At least I can write a lot faster if I've got a detailed outline that I'm working from than if I'm just, you know, sitting down and trying to do stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what your guys' experience is, but Mm -hmm. mine is, uh, that goes a whole lot slower. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, once you've got that outline hammered out and you think you're going to be ready to move forward, the next thing is make sure you've got a schedule and that you stick to it. Uh, if you set aside a specific amount of time every day where you're, you know, you know, you're going to write, your family knows you're going to write 
and your friends know to not bother you then because they know you're writing, um, and then you, you actually use that time to write, uh, you can get a lot of words done, right? And uh, it's just a matter of having the discipline to stick with it. If, if it's a priority for you to get a game publication out there or, you know, any really kind of written or artistic endeavor, uh, you got to acknowledge that you're going to have to make some sacrifices to get it done. Um, and But you got to make sure that those are the sacrifices you're willing to make and make sure that, you know, this thing you're focusing on is your is a higher priority than the stuff that you're willing to let slide. Mm, very, very true. All right, you have dumped a whole heap of wisdom on us um, tonight, which is which is amazing, <laughs> which I'm going to get something out of most certainly. Uh, and we've certainly sort of talked about uh, your your product, but if you could p- impart a single nuggetry wisdom of uh, of advice for anyone who was wanting to submit to the foundry, what would that advice be? Um- You've got to be really bad at something before you can get good at it. <laughs> Don't expect, you know, your first piece, the first thing you write to be, you know, the Mona Lisa or Beethoven's Fifth. Um, set modest goals for yourself. Yep. Get people to comment on it. And uh, progress is incremental, right? So Ooh. once you've got something bad, you can work that up to become something that's, you know, less bad and eventually get it to the level where you're doing pretty good work. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think this also goes true in the foundry for updating existing products. Mm. Um, you know, and this this relates to some of the conversation we had with Cat as well about how this is a it, when it when it comes to layout and design, especially. And, and you brought up a few key points as well. We're we're, we're playing a different game because it's a digital medium, right? Mm. And one thing I can't do with I cannot do with a published book is I can't go back and add new content later. Mm. Um, I can't I can't change things for the better. Um, but these are all things that, you know, even when you have your best efforts out there and you've play tested appropriately and you've got a product out there, even if it's your first effort, you can go back and you can update it. You can make changes to it. You can improve it in small ways. And that doesn't invalidate or impact the validity of your even sales or success on the foundry, you know? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I put in the hope prep notes is that uh, the power system that I introduced there is a quick and dirty adaptation of magic. I really hope at some point FFG will release an actual super system. And when they do, I will update that product to make sure it's using it, assuming that, you know, it's available. <laughs> yeah, but the magic system is so versatile. Yeah, it's, so, exactly. you can, it's it's so reskinnable. Um, it, it, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Sorry, I know that um, when uh, I was looking at doing uh, sort of uh, my Marvel's hack, uh, or Marvel Hack, sorry, should I say, um, when I ran, well, was planning to run it at uh, Game and Ancient Con, uh, is that that's exactly what I did, is I just took the magic system um, and retweaked it so that each of the powers were basically just one of the uh, one of the spell uh, actions. So, uh, and that worked perfectly fine. So, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting if, uh, if, FFG, if FFG do come up with with something for a magic system and for a, uh, a super system. And I hope they do because it's so in demand. I, I agree. Um, I figure they have acquired a Marvel license for some, per- some well, games. It yeah. sure would be cool if there was money in the budget to make Genesis one of those. It sure would. <laughs> <laughs> FFG, if you're listening. Uh, but anyway. 
and we know some uh, of them are. And if it are. is, I'd love to be involved. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Anyway. You, you, heard it, you heard it here first. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So, so, all right, John, to wrap up, speaking of more immediate projects <laughs> <laughs> that we know you're working on, Talk to us about what's next. What's next for you and the foundry? What you you you're you're dropping content like a madman. So I mean, what 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 next piece of insanity can we expect from uh, from from your keyboard on the foundry? So I'm currently working on volume two of Anthrochimerics. Um, I've already got the stock art picked out and purchased, and a fair chunk of it has been written. I just need to finish that writing process and uh, get everything tweaked and play test it out the way that I would like it to be, mm-hmm. and then hope to have that one up. But I'll tell you, I was listening to one of your recent podcasts mm. when you guys were talking about resilience, and I really want to write the guide, the Everything is Awful guide for <laughs> Genesis, which is the would be the companion for poisons and disease, because that just seems like a gaping hole that somebody should work on. But you would be the person for that book. Surely, <laughs> if anyone should be responsible for that book, it's you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Just knowing your skill set, I think that's sort of yes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh, John, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us. We really, really appreciate it. Hey, this was great fun. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it as well. Anytime, anytime, and listeners. Um, Again, be sure to head to the Foundry. If you haven't picked up Anthrochimerics already, seriously do so. It's well worth the money. Um, The way these very unique and wonderfully balanced and well-designed archetypes are put together, they really can work in any setting. Um, And and as John teased and mentioned, the addition of the the species-specific talents is not only a, a wonderful new mechanic, for your games, but also a wonderful piece of inspiration, quite frankly, for any uh, aspiring creator out there. So uh, be sure to check it out. Absolutely. So, Chris, do you think we should um, get on to a few questions for some of our our listeners? Do we have to? We probably should. And we'll do that. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) And we'll do that under the hammer. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we will answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG and uh, how it impacts both rules and content creation and, of course, play. Now, we are continuing to get a lot of questions from our listeners, so thank you to all of those who have been firing them off at us. Uh, There are a whole heap of them, uh, but we want more. And we'll get onto that in a minute. So, um, but yeah, all of them have been awesome. Uh, we will try to get on to uh, the questions if, if it is a burning question that you need to know for your current campaign. And if you're lucky enough in the middle of your session, and I'm online because I seem to live on Facebook, um, but uh, we'll try to answer that. So, uh, but definitely keep them coming. All right, Chris, would you yeah. like to take us through our first question? Yeah, this one actually came in via email from Francis Martin. Um, who, who says the following. Uh, first, congrats are in order. I love your show. It helps me tremendously as a GM. I think you both have an amazing relationship and your welcoming positive attitude is refreshing. Well, that's oh, kind. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Fran. I hope we can call you Fran. Um, I'm calling you Fran now. Wow, we may, we, we may, we may no longer have a happy listener. We'll see. Um, uh, he says, okay, so, so as for my question, um, you often advocate Genesis and the narrative dice system uh, to be the system of yes and. Okay? 
Um, and yes, I love it. The, the back and forth between success and failure. But the, e uh, the, the ease of narration that comes with the system. But I have been confronted with two kinds of situations that can often feel anticlimactic and bog down the story. First of all is the roles where everything cancels each other out <laughs> or maybe leaves one advantage or one threat. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is my players having two, three, or four consecutive bad roles resulting in no and mm. with failures and threats. Um, I dread these moments when either the game uh, leaves me on my own or the game feels less fun for me and my players. Um, I suppose you must have been confronted with these situations. Do you have any suggestions on how to cope with them? Do we have suggestions? Absolutely, we've got suggestions. And this happens, unfortunately, it does happen occasionally. The first thing that I want to point out is that failure is not always going to just be failure. Uh, <laughs> failure is one of those things that is necessary to and sometimes drive the story forward. So just because they haven't succeeded in something, it's going to have a ramification as in everything in the world, that there is, you know, there is consequence to every action, that something is going to happen as a result. And yes, it might be frustrating, but it's up to you as a GM and it's up to the players as well to turn that failure into something a little bit more meaningful. Um, so make sure that when you're looking at uh, your your game that you look at, what happens when something succeeds? What happens as if something fails straight off the bat before you even make a check? And if you can't work out that, maybe you don't even need to be making the check in the first place. Yeah. But well, if, I think I, I imagine I imagine they probably, he's probably talking about combat. Yeah, true, uh, true, absolutely. And then you don't really have much choice. <laughs> You've got to deal with with the ramifications of that. Um, yeah. But. But a pure cancellation is basically, it's just another failure. Uh, and a fail check doesn't mean uncancelled results leave failure symbols. A fail check means uncancelled results leave no successes. That's something this that, which is, is important. This is extremely important. And I, I've, I've, got, I've got one of, one of my dearest friends, uh, uh, GM Brev. Um, this is his biggest problem with the narrative dice system. It doesn't stop him from loving it or playing it. Uh, but it's his biggest problem is that he hates when you get a null, when it's all blank faces or when everything cancels itself out. Yep. Um, and he's like, because it, it's nothing. It's not a success. It's not a failure. No, it's a failure. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's it it's a failure. It's the same result. A, a pure cancellation is the exact same result as six failures with no threat or advantage. Mm. It's the exact same result. It's a failure. Mm. Okay, that's it. And you just said it, Huli. Six like like failure does not mean there's failure symbols left after the cancellation. It means there's no success. Yep. Okay. Mm. So it it's still a failure. All right. Now, this is the first part of his question, and this is another thing I want to point out too. <sighs> Blank faces in the dice. Now, now, a null cancellation where it's just everything cancels perfectly. Okay, mm -hmm. that happens more often. But there's also the corollary situation. And Huli, have you ever had it happen where all blanks come up on the dice? Uh, look, I know a few players who will talk about um, having all uh, setback die coming up as blank for the bad guys it happens all the time <laughs> yeah. you know they put uh, up all of the shields and whatever else and yeah it does absolutely nothing so yes but, but, but I'm, I'm talking about the entire dice pool 
Look, solid point. Rarely it happens, but I mean, it it has happened, but rarely there's stuff that's left behind uh, uh, that isn't left behind. Sorry, there's always going to be some symbols on some dice. Well, well, no, I mean, it, I've, I've had it happen, mm. but I want I want to I want to get a little strict. I guess a little tactical here for a moment and get a little crunchy, and I want to talk about those blank symbols. Yep. Okay. Sure. And and why every single die in the game has a blank symbol on it. It, it's there because it's the only way to ensure that the possibility exists to always succeed and or or to always fail, no matter what the dice pool is. And let me let me I, I can probably better explain this by example. Okay, <laughs> so Huli, if I if your character has a brawn of one <laughs> and zero ranks in melee, and they pick up a sword. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go attack a dragon. Mm-hmm. They're rolling one green die. Right. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, that's two purple difficulty. The dragon's adversary three. Uh, therefore, that's now two red and one purple. And they have a defense of two. So that's two setback dice. Okay, and so I'm looking at one green versus five difficulty dice of different colors, ultimately. Okay? <laughs> By this stage, I'm running away, but, right. but sure. You are, but in any good role-playing game, there has to be the possibility that you can succeed. Mm. In that role, mathematically, it is it is maybe not plausible, but it is possible that every single one of the negative dice could roll a blank face. And you, as long as you roll one success on your green die, you will hit. Yep. You with me so far? Yep, absolutely. The same goes true in reverse. If I've got five or six positive dice in my pool and I'm rolling against one purple difficulty, mm. it is possible I could fail. Okay, by all blanks coming up on the positive dice, it is possible. Okay, so that's why those blanks exist. Mm. They have to be there. They're there on the dice for a very specific reason to ensure that there's always the slim hope of being struck by lightning when you roll (laughs) and succeeding when you shouldn't, but you still have the mechanical capability to do so. Because, I mean, let's face it, there are other systems out there, cough, cough, D20, that same thing happens. You know, you roll a 20, you yeah, hit. you roll a nat 20 or a nat 1. Yeah. Yep, exactly. That, that, that's it. Now, the unfortunate side effect of having to have those blank faces on there is you will occasionally have situations where, because of the blank faces, you get a null result. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just something you have to cope with. Yeah. Um, now, he had two points. The first one was this whole cancellation out. My best piece of advice, first of all, everything Huli said is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, m- m- make sure that there's an escalation as a result of the failure. It's not just, it's not just, oh, you failed, move on. Okay. Mm. Something negative should hopefully happen as a result of the failure. Sometimes that's hard in combat, but it should hopefully happen. Mm. Um, the other thing too is when, when I get complete washes, that's a great way as a GM to introduce hilarious scenarios. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you're you you're you're in the saloon and you the the vigilante have chased down the you know the man in black and you've been duking it out and you both pull pistols on each other at the exact same t- same time mm. after duking it out and shooting at each other and you both pull the trigger at the same time and c- 
click. <laughs> you're, both, you're, you're both out of ammunition. Right. Or you, or you both misfire. Mm. Those types of, of weird, like, like, in other words, this is a really weird scenario to happen in game. Yeah. Let it be a weird scenario to happen during the encounter. Have fun with it. Yeah. The other thing that, that is worth noting as well is that very rare, and this is what I, I thought you were getting at before, but I'll touch base on it now. So what I'm saying is that it is very rare for all of the dice to be rolling on their blank side. Okay, it does happen. I've seen it happen, but it is rare, very rare for it to happen. So, what we're talking about when we're talking about a uh, a complete wash may be just that all of the symbols cancel each other out to leaving nothing. Absolutely, yeah. Something that you uh, that is probably more a little bit of advanced play, I guess, but something that that I'm a, a big proponent of is that. Those dice, when you're looking at it, have come from somewhere, whether they be that they come from the difficulty, whether they come from the, uh, you know, the setback die because of the, the night sky or or uh, the boost die or whatever else. All of those symbols are going to come from, or all the dice are going to come from somewhere. And those dice are going to have certain symbols. So even though that they cancel out, you're going to have a clear idea of what actually happened. And so you can use that to tell the story narratively of why there was a failure. That's something that, that's worth looking at as well. Now, what about his second point of players having two, three, or four consecutive bad rolls resulting in no and with failures and threats? <sighs> that's really frustrating. <laughs> and this is, not, this is not a problem in Genesis, man. This is, I'm sorry, this, this is every role-playing game that's oh, ever absolutely, been. Ever- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just a problem that can happen, mm. and and the solution for dealing with it isn't exclusive to Genesis. Mm. Ask yourself if your difficulties are too high. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ask yourself if your difficulties are too high. I'm a huge fan of escalation, and let me tell you what I mean. Mm-hmm. It may seem counterproductive or counterintuitive, but it, it, it's 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 not. When your players fail with threat, make things worse. Mm-hmm. That sounds crazy. Make make it worse. Make it more difficult. It really ratchets up the tension for the scene. Yeah. And if they're failing two, three, four times with threat, make things more and more and more difficult. Mm. Worst case scenario, they run away. Mm. Okay. If you designed your encounter correctly, defeating the bad guys should not be the end-all, be-all they need to continue in the adventure to begin with. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of escalation. That way you're still providing meaning to those terrible results. Mm. The fact that they're happening still sucks, but at least you're providing meaning for them. The worst thing you can do is like, oh, you miss, move on. Yeah. That's not what the system's about. No, that's right. Yeah, look, um, <laughs> maybe it's also time to tell your players, maybe it's time to change tactic as well. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, uh, <laughs> it goes down to something that you'd sort of said in a previous episode, that sometimes just because you don't have a skill doesn't mean that you can always do it. In this sort of scenario, if they're constantly failing, yes, it's frustrating. Yes, sometimes it can just happen because of bad probability for that particular uh, encounter. But sometimes it's because the players are using skills that they don't possess. And they're wanting it to be cool, but for whatever reason, they've chosen not to spend their XP on uh, their mechanic skill. Mm-hmm. And that's a reason why they've they've failed three times to to repair the hyperdrive or whatever else. You know, it is something that maybe it's time to okay suggest to your players why doesn't um, you know Bob and Joe give uh, the other uh, character a hand uh, and give them some extra boost die 
or you know maybe you can look you know point towards the 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 story points or or you know gosh it would be you know it's almost like if you had a better aim on on the target maybe you could hit <laughs> you know so subtly encourage them to do that god maybe 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 if your friends distracted like if i have players that are failing again and again and again and again it's usually the situation where they're all trying to be a big billy badass yeah. and they're all trying to they're all trying to take the shot when it's like dude it's a difficult task why aren't you using the assist maneuver right mm, mm. well you know it's like it's like it's like you know pro, do, do, you know provide an assist do some skilled assistance here mm. um Fo- focus on distracting the foe so that you know w- work as a team instead of individuals. That may be another thing to promote subtly to your mm, players. Absolutely, and of course, the last thing, when, especially when it comes to combat, it's okay to run away. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's get out of that mentality of we have to keep fighting until the very end until everybody's you know TPK'd. You know, there is a reason why that. Uh, you know, tactical withdrawal is a thing. I know. You can, for whatever reason, be overwhelmed. You know, and suggest that. That mentality, that mentality is baked into a lot of role players because of uh, older editions of Dungeons & Dragons, which yeah, most absolutely. people have cut their teeth on, where mm. you advance your character based on what you killed, so you don't run away. Yep. And it's just not the case. So, mm. yeah. Indeed. Well, hopefully that answered your question, uh, Francis, uh, or Frank, that, or Fran, or whatever whatever it is that you'd like us to call you. Um, that, ram- so- <laughs> that rambling uh, 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 set of answers, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so our next question comes from Ben Fish uh, via Facebook. Uh, and he says, um, so Genesis says driving is for non-fantasy driving from basic cars to future cars, whereas riding is for definitely fantasy horseback. What about horse-drawn carriages, carts, and stagecoaches? Which skill should I be using? Oh, brother. <laughs> okay. okay, so um, if you th- th- there's several skills like this. I'm, I'm going to leave piloting out of the equation because that obviously is not going to apply. Right. Um, the, there, there are really uh, uh, three potential skills that could be used. Um, depending on the setting and the circumstances. Now, when you talk about driving, which is page 60 of the core rulebook, mm-hmm. if you read driving, it specifically calls out if something uses a motor <laughs> and, it, and it traverses the land, mm-hmm. that's driving as per the raw usage of the skill. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the other option, potentially, where it's like, okay, this is a vehicle, mm-hmm. right? A cart could be maybe operating you might you might go to that and that's page 62 Mm. um now the thing is though operating specifically calls out anything big and the best (laughs) way to think about is any is anything with a crew yeah okay Mm -hmm. and and the bottom line is a horse-drawn cart carriage or stage because it's not doesn't have a crew it has a driver okay Mm. that's that's what it has so if you're going to go purely rules as written you can't use driving or operating that leaves two other skills which are riding or survival, okay? And survival specifically called out, and honestly, this depends on the setting, Ben. Um, if this is a modern setting or a futuristic setting mm-hmm. um, where where writing should not be used as a skill, then the rules pretty much say, look, use survival for this kind of stuff mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're dealing with, with you know, animal-drawn or animal-ridden conveyance mm-hmm. of some type. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, driving is also a skill that doesn't work in fantasy settings. Okay, riding basically takes its place. Mm. 
So I don't know, Huli, like if the skill comes up often enough to warrant it, like like first of all, like first of all, like this is a fantasy setting, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Could you not just use driving and make it uh, specific for for carts and animal drawn conveyance? I mean, if you if you really feel the need to have a separation of skills between riding and because I would I would say use riding, yep. but if you if you feel if you feel that if it's fantasy, just use riding. But if you if you feel that you need a separation of skills, if it's that important to your game, mm. I mean, would you have a problem just using driving for that? Not at all. Uh, I mean, you could even create your own skill like. Carting or, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> very true. It's very very true. Yes. But yes, but absolutely. I think but I think that uh, for the most part the the uh, why sort of go outside the box when the box is already built. Um, when it comes to uh, driving, I think that that's probably the most appropriate. Uh, I guess if you wanted to, you know, take it to the next degree where. You know, we're we're um, in a, a setting similar to Shrek, where we've got flying. Uh, you know, flying <laughs> stagecoaches or whatever else. Obviously, you'd be looking at something like piloting or whatever else. But ultimately, it boils down to that you do whatever is needed for your setting. And if you've got people that are using those skills all the time, and it's like a Ben-Hur setting, for example, uh, where it's very much, you know, about gladiator, gladiatorial battles and, and things like that on, on chariots, Maybe you need to create a charity skill or, you know, just a chariot skill. And as long as you're consistent all the way through the campaign, and as long as the NPCs are consistent, you know, there's no harm in splitting up these skills. You know, would we recommend it? I don't think so. But, you know, it's your campaign, your rules. Uh, so if, if that suits you better, do it that way. It, it, it depends. I mean, th- this, is, and, no, this is the thing. This is the question. Mm. Do you need to make a separate skill that comes down that comes down to your setting and your campaign? Mm. Do you see driving? Because look, in the real world, yeah, cart driving is actually a radically different skill than than riding. And I, I, my, like my, my my wife is a is an accomplished equestrian. Okay, mm. riding a horse is a very different skill set than driving a cart. It is extremely different. They're related, but but warranted enough in the real world to be different skills. That doesn't mean they need to be different skills in the role-playing game. Yep. Is it going to make a big enough... Di- I mean, look, look, like, like if, I'm, if my setting is a Western, damn mm-hmm. right I'm going to break up those skills. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, if, if we want to look at a, a good example, we'll look at uh, Ready Fight uh, by, yeah. uh, by Keith Keppel. He uh, obviously is part of that, the 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 brawl skill needs to be split into two because there there's obviously everybody's going to be using the brawl skill so if there's a requirement for it split it up and uh, as you say if you're definitely using chariots or guards or whatever else all the time fine split up riding into two separate skills so it becomes horse riding and um, stage coaching or whatever you want to call it so, yeah, or, uh, or or riding and driving or yeah. carting or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, but but it, but if but honestly, be be realistic about it. Mm. If if it's not going to be a huge theme in your setting, just do it under riding. Just mm. make it riding. Yep, <laughs> I agree. So for our third question, um, Roy Altman asks uh, via Facebook. Yes. Now this has been asked for sure many times, but couldn't find. But he couldn't find the answer. Uh, how do you know? When to apply soak to incoming damage. 
For instance, does the damage from a weapon's burn quality get reduced by soak? I think I read somewhere that it says damage, you apply soak, but if it says suffer, you don't. In the core rulebook, burn quality description, it says suffer damage. So what gives? <laughs> okay, this is a really good question with a really simple answer. This actually has been clarified by the developers. Um, and honestly, you can tease it apart in the core rules, Roy, if you look closely enough. Um, the key, There's only one keyword that applies, and that keyword is damage. Yep. If it inflicts or suffers or deals damage, quotation word being damage, then you apply soak. Um, the, the best example I can give you for this, actually, um, is going to be on page 88 of the core rulebook for Genesis. Take a look at the stun quality and compare it to the one just beneath it, the stun damage quality, Okay, which is on the same page. The stun quality inflicts strain. It doesn't use the word damage. It inflicts strain, not strain damage, strain, whereas the stun damage quality deals strain damage, okay? Uh, and thus, stun, which inflicts strain, bypasses soak. Uh, the stun damage quality, which inflicts strain damage or damage to the strain threshold, is does have soak applied to it. So, so the key word there, man, is damage. If you see the word damage, soak applies. It's a very, very simple question um, and with a very, very simple answer. So, yeah, take a look at that. But thank you very much, Roy, for, uh, for your question. I know that that question does come up a lot because it's not 100% clear and you do have to go looking for it. Uh, but uh, hopefully that, uh, that sorts that out for you as well. So, Chris, that brings us to the end of a very long show, but it's been very entertaining and very educational as far as Cat's uh, uh, discussion, uh, especially. I found that most useful. Um, but uh, if you listeners have any questions that you'd like us to answer about developing your own content for Genesis, being a GM or a player, or general questions about the rules themselves, you can send us an email to forgegenesis at d20radio.com, or you can post your questions to either Facebook, Twitter, YouTube by searching Force Genesis. Uh, and now you can even find us on MeWe and Instagram. Thanks, Scott. Really? For, yeah, I put us on MeWe and Instagram. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking either. But anyway, there is no way that you cannot find us. And if there is, let us know because I'll sign up for that too. But anyway, uh, and of course, if you've uh, sent us a message to, uh, to any of our mediums, uh, you may be lucky enough to get yours answered here on the show. Uh, also, be sure to uh, join the ever larger discussion group. Uh, in the D20 Radio Facebook group, where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And don't forget to give us a like as well, guys, uh, wherever it may be. Um, <laughs> reviews are also extremely important, so please drop us one on your favorite podcatcher, iTunes, and of course, Facebook. Uh, you can also, again, visit us on our website at ForgeGenesis.com. And as Huli said, you can listen to all of our episodes on YouTube. And uh, you can also touch base with us by joining the D20 Radio uh, Discord server where we now have our own channel, uh, thanks to uh, JT. Uh, we've, uh, we've posted this on our Facebook page as well for those who want to know, um, but you can visit us at discord.gg forward slash F-Q-T-P-G-Y. <laughs> I don't know why they don't have like shorter names, but anyway, you can find us. Uh, we'll make sure that we post just, it up on there. Just, just go to our Facebook page and you can find it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
But listen, <laughs> guys, we're up. This has been such a long episode. Our episodes are getting are, are getting so long, and we're really <laughs> trying to keep the content so crisp and on point. And I think we are. We just have so much amazing content to mm. share. Mm. So uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying it. But I am really excited for our next episode. You guys need to be sure to tune in because we are going to be coming back to our irregular series looking at archetypes. Uh, specifically, we will be looking at willpower-based uh, archetypes. Um and creating them yourself. Also, uh, we will have another special guest returning to the show uh, to talk to us about his amazing entry in the Foundry. And I'm really looking forward again to speaking to Sterling Hershey. Indeed. I cannot wait. Uh, Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm GM Hooley. May your triumphs be many, and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And thanks again for joining us. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the D20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Can I just get a sound check from everyone, please? I'm going to do testing, one, two, one, two. This is a test. Perfect. Christopher? Check, check, one, two, one, two. <laughs> You're tuning into KBTL, all the hits, all the time. And I'm your host, Johnny Storm. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Hopefully. Yes. This is God. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> oh, dear. You've been a bad boy, Hooli. God. <laughs> See what I'm going to put up with, Kat? Um. <laughs> wow. All right. Oh. So, good going five.